flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian on late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming speed, wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean, I wish that I could spread my wings, I wish that I had seven limbs, yeah, that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish Dímelo, dímelo At least I kinda understand it <laughs> Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit And get so large I could play pool with the planets yeah. I wish I was an astronaut I wish I knew more classic rock <laughs> Focused on myself You can help me wish But I would rather wish for help It's like, it's like I wish, I wish That every time we love it It feels just like this I wish, I wish That every time we do it It feels just like I wish, I wish, and every time we move and it feels just like this, feels just like this, it's just, it's like, like who the thunk we would turn some dumb shit into something that got everybody. Hello, and kids, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and today on Bad Faith, we talked about force the vote. It's not my choice. Force the vote forces itself upon me because everything is forced the vote. Of course, I'm referring to the fact that we are talking about the change in leadership uh, in the House. Um, m- former majority, or still, I guess, for the time being, majority leader Nancy Pelosi stepped down uh, last week, which should not really have come as a pr- surprise. And she announced the last time around that she wouldn't be seeking the leadership position again. But people have reneged before, so um, that was obviously news. And it put me in the mind. I, I asked Ryan to come on and talk about it because I saw that he had written about it in kind of the history of Nancy Pelosi's career in the House on his Substack. And there are a few people who I know who know more about that kind of nitty-gritty history. But as I was thinking about it after asking him and preparing for the episode, I was put in the mindset of how familiar the situation is to when we were talking about force the vote in earnest two years ago because at that time if you'll remember one of the main points of pushback from the anti-force of vote crew was that you know the the progressives just just hadn't had time to organize a leadership challenge and they just didn't know who they were going to vote for in lieu of nancy pelosi even if it wasn't because even if they didn't think that that person was going to win they needed a placeholder um because nancy pelosi couldn't secure the leadership position without their votes, right? You don't just need a bare majority of Democrats, you need a majority of the caucus. So, you know, they could hold out indefinitely and change for a concession. So here we are again with a conversation happening because Republicans have shown immediately that they're willing to mount some kind of leadership challenge. Um, Kevin McCarthy was ultimately successful, but there were 
you know, at least there was a race, at least there was a contest. And of course, there's an ongoing conversation about whether or not any coalitions will be formed because the Republicans now only have a very narrow margin between some of the anti-war uh, voices in the Republican Party and the ostensibly anti-war voices in the Democratic Party or in some variety of other issues on which there is simpatico. And it was frustrating to listen to these conversations happen so credibly. Liberal media talking about how this is a credible opportunity for, um, you know, conservatives in the House who are in the minority position and how they have so much power, how, you know, they can leverage their power because of narrow margins. When mom was the word, what it was Democrats in that position. So, uh, Ryan and I ended up talking about that. It also didn't escape me that we're like literally two years almost to the day. It seems to me from when the fourth vote conversation really began in earnest. I remember being home on Thanksgiving break when it started to pop off. When I heard Sam Cedar first introduced the idea to me and said, Oh, I heard Jimmy Doris said had a good idea. And I, when I knowing their uh, animosity, I followed up. I went on uh, rising with crystal and saga and talked about it. Crystal did a number of segments on it and we were off to the races. And then within like a week or two, everything had flipped, everything had turned. And so it was both cathartic and kind of um, triggering to walk through those paces again with Ryan Graham. But I'm interested to know what you all think about it. Also, Shahid Buttar, the only challenger to Nancy Pelosi and her 30 odd years in the house will be joining us later. He has an engagement, but will be free around nine o'clock Eastern um, and we'll be adding his perspective. Few people have a better perspective on Nancy Pelosi than he does. But uh, until then, let's get to it. Serene, what's on your mind? Hey, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Two clips are great. Great episode, by the way. <clears throat> Two clips stood out. The first was Hakeem Jeffries and that sixth borough Mm-hmm. comment the sixth borough is jerusalem like that was that was fucking insane it's pretty well shout what, out to the people at um mean tv or yeah I, I like that you included their clip i follow them on instagram there i i recognized uh what's his name sam's voice I mean, uh, yeah sam Sachs is it yeah yeah good dude yeah and then the other clip was I me not me agreeing with a bunch of shit Matt Gates is saying. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like your Marjorie Taylor Green like redux. <laughs> it's like the most broken clock thing. But there's a lot to learn in that, right? Because if Bernie can work with, I mean, a number of people, but the most recent one I think is something he did with Josh Hawley or. Mm-hmm. I might be getting that wrong. Uh, yeah. No, I think that's right. But like, I mean, what a what a wild world. <laughs> He's making a lot of sense. And then Indeed, you, if, you, if if you play that isolated clip, and that's all I knew of Matt Gates. Yeah. I don't want I don't want the sound clip of me out there saying I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it sounded pretty good. Yeah, and I'd like I I forget if it was you or Ryan or maybe both of you, but. Right after, it's like, you know, if this gets, you know, wherever this goes, the, they're going to come in with the, he's an election denier and he's this. And, mm-hmm. and it's just so striking because compare that to the flip side of what you guys were talking about with Hakeem. 
and just like the way identity has been flipped every which way and and weaponized and just it's like a house of mirrors at this point like they know what they're doing you know elevating certain people and making them kind of in an unassailable you know setting it up to be like well you better not say the wrong thing about what he's doing and i don't know that was all very striking yeah i i i I was shocked by those uh, clips myself. I hadn't heard it before. Ryan brought it up. I mean, obviously, I had heard the Hakeem Jeffries one. It, it is it is frustrating because from where we're sitting and how we consume our politics and, you know, what we see, it's such a the, – the, the, the plurality of political opinion, the – collections of ideas that exist in any one given person are so much more unpredictable than the image you get when you consume the binary mainstream news and their explanation for moments like these is just like horseshoe theory. Oh, like you're secretly loving Trump or you're secretly loving the right. Um, You know, it's all a grift, but you know, while I think, you know, politicians who knows what Matt Gaetz's real objectives are, Marjorie Taylor Greene or any of those kinds of people in the real world, like those cynical folks who are exploiting these kinds of positions are able to do so because in the real world there do exist folks with these clusters of opinions that are all over the ideological map and it is on one level weirdly heartening to see people like going for those voters because in an ideal world it would mean that democrats would have to wake up and go for those voters too and that it would be a race to the left instead of a race to the right that we always see right um but I'm not optimistic that that's actually what's <laughs> what's going to happen. So we're just going to be sitting here watching. We're just going to be sitting here watching as the right tries to pull itself together into some like performatively populist movement. And it will be fake and it will be dumb, but it will be the only alternative to the status quo. And it's going to be potentially painful to watch if the left doesn't figure itself out. Yeah, because there's just glaring hole after glaring hole that they're just marching into with this language. And they're picking up voters. If someone says, hey, no one should ever be a lobbyist after they serve in Congress, like who can argue with that? And why is it Matt Gates forcefully saying that in very like plain, you know, angry, sort of aggressive language? Plus, he gets the, you know, extra cred of like, quote unquote, going against his own team, like going like he's saying it in opposition to Kevin McCarthy. So it's like. People see that and it's it's almost an extra layer of credibility because it's not just, oh, he's a, he's on the right and he's bashing the left. He's like, no, fuck this guy on our team. I'm going to work with whomever's on the Democrat mm-hmm. side. It's like people eat that shit up. Mm-hmm. You get so much credibility for being willing to call out the excesses of, of your own side. And there's, you know, people really laud Nancy Pelosi for being such an effective whip. But... I wonder what the long-term consequences will be for Democrats in terms of their widespread credibility when there's absolutely no dissent allowed within their ranks. And I think that maybe you're already seeing that. Um, You know, there's just, everyone seems so fake. Like, I I, I think that Chuck Schumer, I guess, is a better person (laughs) than, than Marjorie Taylor Greene. But when you listen to them talk, everything just sounds so fake. Right. And, and, 
because how could how could hundreds of people have that kind of a uniform position? How could hundreds of people never have any substantive disagreement with each other apart from like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? How could all of how these? Could, how could? Yeah, go ahead. How could someone make a member of their own party cry and then yeah. you never hear about it again? Like yep. no details from either side. No one involved. No one asks. No one like catches Ilhan in an interview and is like, "Hey, what do you think about that?" Yep. AOC. Like, how is there rate? It's it's amazing and it's kind of creepy actually because yep. like, what are what are the Democrats able to do to each other that seemingly the Republicans can't? Because you you get all every few weeks you get someone like like a Matt Gates being like, no, fuck this. This is fucked up what the art our side is doing or, you know. Yeah. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene did have her committee appointment stripped or whatever, or Lauren Boebert, one of them, maybe both of them, right? Boebert bought the gun yeah. and got her, her point yeah, for yeah. that, I think. So Hello. it's not like there aren't some consequences for them. They just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't care. Yeah. And they're good at spinning every, every punishment. Like you look at me, I, I, I I'm willing to give up this. I mean, I, I I doubt that like the average person is like really keyed into who's on which committee. So it's I I feel like a Marjorie Taylor Greene can easily be spin that to be like they kicked me off the committees because I'm telling the truth. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, what truths do we expect to get from someone like ASC? Even I mean, you heard right in the interview. I was surprised. Um, I was a little surprised how willing he was to acknowledge some things about AOC that the, that, and the progressives that they haven't fought at all, laying out the strategies that they could deploy, but they won't. Um, talking, you know, ag- you know, agreeing that she should do more lefty media. I talked to him a little bit about that afterward. You know, yeah. I, he, he, I mean, she knows. I think that every everybody knows, and I, I, I don't know what her their confidence is. To not have to be beholden at all to the base that got them elected, I guess they're popular enough, and she earned enough money from like normie Democrats, and maybe she's right, and that's fine. But like, that's a, that's a bleak position for the rest of us, and it makes it very difficult for them to make the argument that we just have to vote for more progressives. Yeah, it's all very bleak. <laughs> anyway, thanks for calling in, Serene. Yeah, no problem. Oh, sorry, one last thing. I just bit. This might be needless speculation but how do you um what what fact do you think i mean i know she announced it before but what fact do you think uh pelosi's husband getting attacked had to do with this like stepping down thing i don't know like i said i mean she did say two years ago that she wasn't going to seek leadership again and so you know maybe nothing um, but it was interesting when I interviewed Ro Khanna on, um, rising last week, uh, and I asked him, you know, what's the deal with Nancy Pelosi? It's before she had stepped down. Uh, he said that it's up to her and that someone that has endured what she endured with respect to her husband doesn't need to basically mm. justify whether she's earned the right. Yeah. Um, and so it seemed to be on his mind, something that he brought up without provocation. Right that there's some connection there, but I don't know that that's something I would have necessarily gone to, but certainly there are a whole host of reasons why it would make sense for her not to run again. And her husband having a pretty serious illness, especially at the ages that they're at, not to mention his drunk driving 
kerfuffle earlier this year, yeah. which I feel like has been memory hold. Uh, um, I mean, there's a lot like going Caitlyn on in the Jen- household. Sorry, go ahead. It's like it's a, just like Caitlyn Jenner. The, the memory know? hole of well, she she like ran someone over and killed them, and that's oh, been memory hold. Yeah. See, I don't even I don't <laughs> even know. So, yeah, there's lot there's lots of plausible reasons, but I don't I don't have any inklings there, Serene. Yeah. All right. Thank you for taking right. my call. Keep the yeah. Faith. Thanks for calling. Keep the faith. Uh, Hillary, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, Bree. Can you hear me? I can. What's up? Hey, um, been loving if I can't make it on the live, just listening um, the recorded versions on my like going on walks and listening. So, so loving the content on call. Oh, I'm so glad. Great. I, I'm um, told I'm told that people like long format stuff. And I always feel guilty about episodes that go over an hour and that I'm told that people like like the length. So I'm glad that this can be a, a, a fill-in for people who wish Bad Faith episodes were longer. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I like some of the short clips, but this can be, yeah, the, your experimentation with long-form stuff. I love it. <laughs> um, so love the clip, the Jeffries clip with um, Biggie Smalls. Wow, so absurd. But I guess you have to laugh <laughs> and it's cry. Laugh, laugh to keep from crying. Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I like that. Um, and I also wanted to talk about, um, I think it's interesting, this this idea that Democrats may work with Republicans on some anti-war stuff, the Matt Gates thing with the trading stocks. I know Spanberger um, actually sponsors a ban on trading stocks, and I think that's what helped her win in Virginia Luria lost and was very adamant um, against saying she would not vote for a ban and she's mm-hmm. a pro trader. Um, so we'll see if they actually do something about it. I mean, the thing is, you know, the Democrats love to say Josh Hawley's fake populist and Matt Gates isn't, you know, whatever. You know what would be great to dispel that rumor is working with them and delivering some good for the, you know, mm-hmm. American public. It's a win win. Mm-hmm. It would it kill them to call their bluff. This is what I said about Marjorie Taylor Greene too. Oh, you think that she's going to advance some stupid bad policy to abolish the FBI? That's just going to uh, enable people like Trump to no longer be accountable to any me- you know legal mechanism. Oh, then how about you draft what you would like and see if she would sign on? And then if she won't, you can actually credibly call her bluff instead of just pontificating on the twitters about it. But no, yeah, they never. It- yeah. And a good leader, a good speaker, even the minority would do that, would advance. And, and Ryan said it, you know, he said it, advance some good to actually legislate. But they can't because it's a colonial project. The whole system is broken. It's meant to preserve the status quo. And nobody on the left wants to even acknowledge that. It's it's weird to me. I don't know what your thoughts are there. I don't know what it is either. I honestly don't. I mean, I've been, I've been, I've been in this state of suspended disbelief. (laughs) I'm sorry. Like since forcible, like I think if there was a world where there wasn't a single lefty outlet where these people could go, where the progressives could go and not be pressed on their failures to pick up on things like this. Um, it would be harder for them to maintain the veneer of 
progressivism. But the, the fact remains that like a good solid half, maybe more of the left, like is there welcoming them with open arms and is the, is the, are the, is the primary source for other leftists to get a sense of what should be done and what our uh, political possibility are. So I, today friends, I, or I interviewed, um, uh, Clara Mate, who many of you have, uh, recommended. I know Jonathan has recommended that I talk to her. She just did an amazing episode on macro and cheese the MMT podcast that people should listen to as well. I'm debating whether oh. to release this on Thursday or to save it for Monday, thereby preventing me from having to do a Thanksgiving episode. But regardless, um, one of the things that we were talking about it was such a good interview. She's so great. Um, and we're, one of the things we were talking about is how l- limited we are in our public conversation about what to do, for example, about inflation, because the public imagination is like purposefully kept small. So there was this, this um, Obama interview with Trevor Noah that I saw over the weekend where Trevor Noah, to his credit, like, asked Obama whether this kind of um, inclusive capitalism that Obama was talking about was really going to accommodate all of the issues that are going on in the world. And he was like, okay, like we invented capitalism. That was an improvement on the mean, but what about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? And Obama was just like, absolutely not. You can't have people go into going into stores and like picking things off shelves and not paying. Like he painted this really ridiculous picture of what any alternative economic model would look like, what socialism looks like. And it seemed almost to purposefully misconstrue what alternatives are possible to prevent people from asking too many questions about the, the clearly evident flaws in our own system. And I, and I feel like that's what the media mm. is doing, including half of the left media is doing right now. And it's why I think it's so important to engage in these kind of wonky conversations with people like Ryan. Cause I know folks have their issues with Ryan. I obviously had my issues with him over force of vote, which we worked out, you know, in, in an episode. He seems, After to, he, he seems to be eating some crow, mind you. It seemed like from the interview. Yeah, and, and look, people should go back and listen to the, the real interview we did where we hashed out all of the specifics on Force of Vote. I think it was the summer of 2021. But, you know, regardless, you know, even when we're disagreeing on things, I am learning from him. It was a belief through Ryan, from Ryan, that I learned that Kevin McCarthy could not become Speaker of the House through the Force of Vote machinations. So, you know, even if he, even if we, I think, rightly criticized him for not pushing back in his interview with Pramila Jayapal for when she says that Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House is why she didn't support force the vote, even though he should have checked her there because he knew better. I wouldn't have known better if he hadn't told us all that or told it, told Jimmy Dore that on the Jimmy Dore show in the first instance. So it's a mixed bag. And I think that, you know, I value him enormously as a resource because I just, I don't know. It's like him, um, David Sirota. David Dan, like, I don't know that many people. Jen Briney's great, uh, but I don't know that many people who can just fill me in on how the things actually work. Yeah, yeah, Dave Day and Ryan Graham are my, the people I look to for that, where you can just read it and know something I didn't know before. Um, my last thing for you is, you know, it seems like we're all on the same page. Broken system, you know, no electoral power. But I do think there's other levers of power that we can maybe put our energies into. And I'd love to know your thoughts. You know, I've been persuaded over the years. I, I was really electoral. I mean, I cried when AOC won in 2018, like such cringe now. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the labor movement, this rail strike that may happen, something Dan's been writing about. Mm-hmm. Um using, you know, building labor power, union power, 
that kind of thing. And still understanding and, of course, seeing what we can do electorally, maybe push some bills with Republicans. That that does seem maybe that that could happen. Um, what are what's your strategy? I mean, it's clearly it's what two years since forced the vote. I, I would love to know kind of what if you've evolved in your thinking or have some new strategies that we could utilize to uh, try and gain some power and make some actual material change. No, force of vote was right. So force of vote until we die. <laughs> no need to correct anything. We were completely on the money and everything that's happened the last two years has validated that strategic approach yes. 110%. Right. Um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm like kidding somewhat. Like, look, we've talked on this podcast a lot about people who have decided to pivot more to talking about to doing mutual aid. Savvy talks a lot about how much more can be done in local politics and how uh, the number of things that have been passed by ballot measure in Massachusetts where she lives by people who are focusing more locally. And I think that both of those are great approaches. I also think as we constantly discuss getting a better grip on the media and having more public education is an important Mm. aspect of this, especially as, you know, I think these, the, all of these union drives that have been, I think covered better and with more at more volume than I think labor actions of the recent past at least have also been a part of that public education. And because it's yeah. touching, it's in these sectors that touch so many people, it seems like less of an abstraction. I think there's something really actually useful about it being like Starbucks workers as opposed to the traditional kind of a factory worker setup. And obviously we have these, this real strike, but I think that it makes it in some ways more accessible for folks who might not ordinarily be that attuned to labor struggle. And that is, that is affecting that, that is having a, a significant public education effect as well. So, I mean, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? That's a great point. No, I think you're right on the money. And it reminds me of um, Rania, I was on one of Rania's call-ins and mm-hmm. she said very something very similar in supporting uh, independent media. And I was thinking my dad, you know, he very much was pro-Israel growing up um, and I would have these conversations with him. And now he he's totally recognizes where he was misinformed. And I wouldn't have been able to have those conversations and push him those years without independent media and mm-hmm. people like Katie, you mm-hmm. know, going on and, and telling her story and then getting fired. Mm-hmm. You talking about a, a myriad of issues, like so poignantly, I'm a current affairs oldie. Um, and mm-hmm. that's where I got most of my arguments and like trying to politically educate people around me is, is through you guys. Well, it's, it's heartening to hear you say, and I, I certainly feel the same way. I learn everything from the guests that come on the show and, you know, from con- consuming what they've written in Jacobin or The Lever or Current Affairs. And, you know, I, I, I feel like a conduit more than a source of knowledge personally, and I'm very, very grateful for all of those sources and for people who are doing all this research and figuring so many things out. There's so much information. I saw Chris Hayes uh, – went had a kind of a viral tweet because he said like I don't know how I'm going to do my job without Twitter and <laughs> I I get that people were kind of clowning on them but I get the sentiment because it is an information al- uh, um, uh, uh, what am I, what is the word that just flew out of my head aggregator an information aggregator that it works better than I can't imagine anything else the people that you follow have been chosen over a course of years 
the algorithm, like, like it or not, it, it, it does a much better job at getting you the kinds of things that you want to know about than, and, and a diverse amount of things because you follow people that you don't agree with, right? And I don't, like, I'm yeah. so grateful to have access to all of that in a kind of easily consumable format. So we'll see what uh, happens with that platform. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, I'll keep it, I'll keep it tight tonight. Thanks again, Bree. Love. Thank you so much for calling in, Hillary. Keep the faith. All right, Andrew, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, um, not too much. I haven't gotten all the way through the episode with Ryan yet, but I like it. Um, once again, credit to you for talking to everybody uh, and actually not being sucked into drama. But the thing I wanted to talk about was um, when you and Ryan were discussing, like, <clears throat> I think the, the explicit part was that the, the system – of the democratic party and the Republican party kind of holding hands on the really important economic and foreign policy issues. Um, they, they really can't allow any other media apparatus to grow large besides the one that, that keeps up their, you know, their whole charade of, Oh, we're actually, we actually are vehemently disagreeing with each other at each other's throats, but only on cultural issues. And, mm-hmm. and part of, part of what that, conversation says implicitly is that um, the representatives in Congress, the other state officials will not go on. They won't talk to the public. They're terrified of the general public. Um, They keep talking about half the country as the, and depending which color they are, they'll talk about a slightly different half of the country or third of the country as though they should be potentially tried for crimes for thought crimes. They'll never, there's no more town halls. And if there are, you know, like you've talked to some other callers about the last couple of weeks, um, there's like people working for the, the elected official who's at the town hall and they're there to make sure nobody disrupts the pre-planned uh, re- basically it's like almost like a recording. Like they're just mm-hmm. there to take photos and say their thing that they've prepared. And um, so I was thinking if you do an uh, episode on, um, how to run for office again or not again, but like you were talking about last week or the week before mm-hmm. um, you might invite on Ralph Nader again, cause he's done it a few times. Um, and he also for years has been saying we should start trying to summons members of Congress to, you know, citizen run town meetings or town halls. And they're so far, as far as I understand, there's no like um, legal framework that means they're obligated to do it. Um, but short of doing something like the yes men or other types of like pranks to get corporate or political figures on camera saying something kind of honest. Um, I think like maybe in the States with ballot initiatives, putting one together, that's like, yeah, if you're a, if you're in an elected office from the local to the federal level in this state and people get a thousand signatures in one municipality or they get 1% of the, um, population to sign a, uh, petition in their municipality, you have to come to a town meeting and talk with them for like two hours and you can't refuse questions, that type of stuff. I feel like, yeah. go ahead, sir. No, no, no. I, I just saying that I think that's great. Uh, I, I reached out to Ralph Nader within the last couple of months, but I'll shoot another email. Uh, sometimes the people that are, that are the in-betweens change, um, yeah. and I'll make sure I have the right contact. 
Yeah, I know Ralph still literally uses a typewriter, so I'm not gonna um, <laughs> not gonna twist your arm if you can't get a hold of him quickly. All right, I'll figure it out. But um, yeah, I think that I think that that's I think that that's right. More direct questions and accountability from politicians are what what it's got to be. It was so dispiriting to see, you know, when all of those um, Larouche uh, protesters were getting their comments in a couple of weeks ago. And then right after that, the CPC letter came out. It did feel like it was responsive. Now, that might not have been the case. Obviously, everybody immediately bailed on the letter and blah, 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 blah. But it did feel for a second like, oh, they protested and the progressives felt compelled to say something. There's been all of this like public discourse about progressives that said how, how they've said nothing, how the right is outpacing them on this issue. And then at very least, they said something. And whether or not that was actually true or whether or not there was any relationship to that letter coming out and all of those protests, it does feel inevitable that a certain amount of, you know, direct confrontation becomes grist in the mainstream media machine because the conservatives for, for perverse reasons, you know, for, for bad faith reasons want to cover it. If AOC gets shut it down, Fox news is going to cover it. And it's not going to be from the perspective that we want <laughs> necessarily, yeah. but that then means that MSNBC can't ignore it. And now we're having a conversation on the mainstream news about the contours of us involvement in Ukraine, which is not a conversation that ordinarily would have been happening. Yeah. What I, what I thought was really wild was after the, I didn't really think of it that way. Like perhaps the LaRouche people uh, and the others who have been yelling about the dangers of nuclear war and the Ukrainian, you know, the funds for the Ukrainian, hard right in the military. Um, the congressional letter came, uh, the congressional progressive caucus letter came out kind of shortly after that. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but what was also wild was that the, um, you know, Mark Milley, the chief of the joint chiefs of staff um, kind of leaked his own protest to the New York times right after that. Like mm-hmm. he was saying, like Mark Milley was saying, yeah, Ukraine has done basically all it's probably going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we think we should negotiate at this point. And he ostensibly said that because he actually wasn't being heard mm-hmm. or he was being dis- inside the Biden administration. I thought, I don't know, that would be interesting if that actually was a little bit of a, a domino effect from the protesters. But I mean, certainly the protests can have an effect. I think these ones are really small, but like, I kind of always like to remind um, myself and others that the, you know, pretty brutal regime of the TPLF in Ethiopia, who was in power for 27 years, were brought down by popular protests in 2018. So it's like they do something. I think um, it's disheartening being in the era right after or shortly after the the big like BLM uprising in 2020 around George Floyd and Arbery's and the other, you know, really highly publicized murders at that time and seeing all of that kind of go away without a lot of gains. I mean, the only substantial gain I can think of um, was that a group of uh, protesters around that uprising in Philadelphia were able to kind of trade back some public land that they were protesting on for like, I want to say 30 different properties to use for housing. Uh, but yeah, like otherwise it's, it's like a deflated moment, but I'm just giving everyone a little tiny bit of uh, hopium that protests do something. So you might be right about that causing the 
CPC letter to come out. Yeah, I think they, they do. And I don't know. I don't remember who I was talking to, but I feel like on a recent episode, maybe it was on Rising. You know, someone made the point about how we don't know yet the long term effect, long term effects of the 2020 protests on radicalizing a whole generation. Because I do, I do think that. You know, we saw the power of Gen Z, like under 40 voters, generally speaking, in the midterms. And those are people that are not going to have to be sold on some of these concepts about racial justice and bail reform and defund the police the way that older generations will. So even though it does feel very dispiriting to have had all of that energy kind of um, subsumed by the Biden 2020 campaign and like put down for the sake of Biden being elected, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that the gains, you know, I don't think that you can write off the effects of that movement or tell what the effects of that movement are going to be long-term judging oh, yeah. from this historical moment. I'll just say one last quick thing is, um, in 2014, 15 in Seattle, there was this buildup of pressure because, uh, like Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company, they were bringing this huge Arctic drilling rig into Seattle, into the port there to be worked you basically outfitted to go up to this pristine part of Alaska to explore for oil. And so people organized this huge protest called shell. No. And it was actually successful. It was like all these people in kayaks and canoes and uh, a few tribes actually brought out their like really big cedar canoes as well. And they had all these banners and stuff they're holding up and they were physically blocking the, um, a lot of materials to come in and work on that rig. And eventually the port pulled the, uh, the permits for shell to keep it there. Mm. And for the next multiple years afterwards, you just meet all kinds of people in the sort of uh, climate activist sphere who are like, Oh yeah. After shell, no, I went to, um, break free or like all these. And so they were protesting at these oil refineries and all these other, um, fossil fuel infrastructure around the state. And that also, I've met people who heard about that, who lived in like the Midwest. And then later I met up with them on the West Coast somewhere. So that that smaller protest was locally very effective. Um, it ultimately stopped Shell from being able to use that rig within a couple of years. Mm. It changed the whole political trajectory of the port and also just had this big ripple effect outwards. And that's like, you know, probably less than one you know, hundredth of a percent the size of people who came out for the George Floyd protests. And mm-hmm. uh, also a lot of the really active protesters around the jazz and the East Precinct in Seattle, a ton of them started doing uh, like urban agriculture and the CSA, they're bringing out food to people in their community. So there's probably like, say like 40% more community gardens in the area now that are perhaps more than 40% more productive than before. And they all still have this very radical political ethic. They all collaborate with each other um, on all these projects. Just, you know, for now it's kind of getting people fed and doing some other kind of trade skill stuff. But I found that to be also very inspiring because again, it was like this big deflation after it happened. The, The demand in Seattle was cut the police budget by 50%. And I think they ultimately ended up voting on something that cut it like 1%. Um, mm-hmm. And they did all this other shady stuff to make sure nothing really would change at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were some other mild legislative changes that were kind of seemed like a result, but 
I think the the overall best result is what you're talking about is there's this gigantic social impact that we can't measure right now. We probably we, we may never exactly be able to measure it, but I think it's certainly going to be perhaps larger even than the impact that people talk about now from Occupy being the kind of, um, you know, jumper cables for socialism in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Look, thanks for calling in, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me up. All right. Uh, Eric, not Cousin Eric, what's on your mind? Hey, Bree. Hey, what's going on with you this evening? So, I mean, like always, I enjoy your episodes, particularly this one when you talk to like Ryan Graham. I do enjoy and appreciate his insight on the inner workings of Congress. And it's so funny every time I hear you have these type of conversations, either be with Ryan Grimm or David Sirota, it actually just makes me more like, I just want the whole, I just wish someone just blow up the whole system. Mm-hmm. Because you get to the point of, from talking with them, mm-hmm. what you realize is I, the, the squad, they have no plan. Or if they had a plan, that has gotten beaten out of them. Mm-hmm. Because to hear Jamal Bowen, Bowman, who is a member of DSA, be happy about Hakeem Jeffries, who mm-hmm. is, I don't think there's a more antagonistic New York uh, congressperson towards DSA than Hakeem Dre- um, Jeffries. And mm-hmm. to hear him say that and to not have any, I'm, like, I'm not sure what the DSA organization are saying, you know, behind closed doors. But I would kick him out if he's still a part of DSA, just for saying that comment. Like, what? You, why are you in DSA? Right. Why are and, you here? And this is, look, I, I think I, I was a card-carrying member. I think, uh, I think that I stopped, I got a notice, my, I stopped, um, I got a new debit card, and I don't think I've been paying anymore. So I can't say anymore that I'm a card-carrying member of DSA. But it wasn't because of a choice. It was because I have a bad personal administration and need to update my information. But, like, as I, I, I say that just to say that I don't have any antagonism to DSA. I'm rooting for DSA. I would like for DSA to be able to leverage some of the enormous and meaningful gains that it's made both politically in terms of getting people in office – and in terms of its growing its membership since 2018, like I like it, it really does. I'm not saying it's it's like the most powerful organization in the world. It's not, you know, APAC, but it's something. And because all of these people have made a stated commitment to to the organization, at very least, there can be a little bit of a media buzz and some public contemplation about who these progressives really are if they were to be kicked out or held accountable in some way or submit to some kind of public conversation. AOC does occasionally give a DSA interview, and I wish those opportunities were used to better effect. And I presume there's still access to have some off-the-record conversations as well. And I would like for there to be some questions and answers given about strategy that DSA can weigh in on. We talk about this all the time with Shama Sawan, who we should get back on the podcast soon, um, about organizations and members being, you know, Beholden is the right word, but responsive to the organization as opposed to the other way around. And this this is a perfect example of how um, impotent it makes DSA look. And it's not fair because the members themselves aren't impotent. There's a lot of diversity of opinion within the DSA. But how impotent it makes the org look when you have members running around so toothless. 
Yeah, and then what it makes, what to me, what it does is it makes it seem like what's the point? Like a lot of people have been saying on this podcast, this call in, and you know, throughout the uh, Benny episodes, there is no point in donating to them. There is no point in giving them any more money. I'm at the point literally now, which I never thought I would get, that I really do not care if any of the squad members loses their seats. Because to me, they've shown that I don't know what they, they don't tell me what their plan is. So to me, if you have no plan, you are useless and pointless. You might as well just get Joe Carly back. To me, I look at Stephen Lee winning in Pennsylvania. I was like, oh, okay. He's not going to do anything. Yeah. I think I really agree with you about these conversations with Ryan. I know that half the audience hates them and doesn't want to hear from Ryan. And I see it in the comments. But for me, it's important to go through the motions of talking through the fact that there is a window of political possibility. What what Ryan sets out is strategies that could have been um, pursued and weren't. And that is so important when you're talking to liberals because the thing that causes so much tension between liberals and the left is, and, and, the, and the line of attack that gets thrown our way is what? That we're not being pragmatic, that they have a plan, that we're out of pocket, that we're overly conspiratorial and paranoid, right? The guy, the... The, the law professor who was mad at me because of my argument about Joe Biden and student debt, popu- uh, student debt cancellation, who doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, but just cannot believe, cannot believe that Joe Biden and a good guy would ever do anything nefarious and wouldn't be fighting tooth and nail for students. And so he, he has to construe anything that I say as paranoid um, conspiracy theory. And it, when you drill down with people who are experts – and people whose whose kind of expertise and knowledge of, of Hill matters can't be impeached, like Ryan Graham. And they are even, even if they don't take an ideological position, they're setting out kind of procedurally and administratively what could have been done. Then you have to, then you can force people like Monaghan or any of these other liberals to actually justify why those paths hadn't been taken. Because otherwise, what do they say? Oh, well, Mansion and Cinema, and it was nobody's fault, and you're just being bad faith. Because one of the things that, to me, I truly believe what needs to happen, and I know, um, I know people don't like this, is that what they need to do, and it may be an accelerationist tactic, is when the next 2024 comes up, they need to be like, we come out right at the back. We are not supporting Joe Biden. If he does not do X, Y, and Z, he does not get any progressive support. They pro- Progressive res- uh, uh, support. They won't do it because I was really upset when... Um, during the New York elections and Hochul, who pretty much, I don't know what she was doing. She mm-hmm. was just, you know, in the back, not campaigning at all until the last minute. And they saw that Lee Zeldin was catching up. So mm-hmm. she's like, oh, and then all of a sudden you start to see all these New York progressive starting to say, oh, go for Hochul, go for Hochul, mm-hmm. Lee Zeldin. Be honest with you. <clears throat> and I guarantee you, they got nothing. Mm. They just did it because Lee Zeldin is a Republican, and you can always count on them to fall in line. Yeah, you heard you pick. heard Zoran say it. Like, I love Zoran Mamdani. This is not, like, a criticism. But you heard them saying it on, on the, the episode last yeah. week that they feel as though, and they're not wrong, that 0% of their agenda would pass if Zeldin were governor. So it was in their best interest. It was in WFP's best interest to get Hochul elected, reelected. And you should listen to the, the interview, the AOC Ryan Grimm interview I keep alluding to at The Intercept. Um, he also, the second part of that interview, he's talking to um, uh, Maurice from WFP. 
And he basically says the same thing. And they're like very proud. Like they're, they're half bragging about having the power to get Hochul elected, but like half, you know, there's this like half shame about it because <laughs> they know that she's bad and they want to criticize her for all of the tough on crime crap, but also they want to flex their power. The problem is the power flex is empty because it doesn't come with any strings. Yeah. Okay. Like you have demonstrated your ability to get Hochul elected. Do you have more grassroots juice in the state than so than the democratic party? Apparently what you're going to do with it is the next question. And then now the lat now this is a little criticism on Ryan Grimm and um, even Dave Sirota is that to me they not, I haven't heard Dave Sirota but um, as the way I see it they're like the last few people who I see on uh, progressive on any to have like a progressive um, mindset and have actual ability to interview these people they're now to me you have to push them on this you have to risk being like this may be the last time i interview aoc this may be the last time i mm-hmm. interview Ilan Ilan omar because we're never gonna we have to get those answers and one thing that's where because i was just thinking about i haven't heard anything from i can't remember what's her name the other squad member who's um from um families from um I think she's Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar. Rashida Tlaib. I haven't like heard anything from Rashida Tlaib in a while. I know. I'm like, what? I think Merrily went. She had a really close race. I think in the last cycle, and I feel like it spooked her. Was that Rashida? Or was that? I thought that was Ilhan Omar. I thought Rashida also had a really tough here. I I know she had a really close primary, and nancy pelosi endorsed her and after that tweet that she gave about nancy pelosi i think i saw what what what, what she had to pay for that endorsement um yeah she did, a, she did a very like very like congratulatory like you know very um bending the knee type tweet to nancy pelosi i'm like oh okay well you're lost yeah yeah i think that look again this is all conjecture but it it does it does feel like uh they've been um humbled <laughs> like they've been broken and i don't know if all these pri- it was the primary challenges that did it but there was a time i remember when Rashid Tlaib was always in my favorite and i remember those videos of my girl getting dragged out of rallies protesting for palestine didn't give a fuck like i i don't know what they did with her i thought she would have been the last one to break and maybe she was the last one to break but you're right she's been awfully quiet she did she did i mean she did say the thing in defense of palestine you know that provoked the whole cycle with katie hopper in the hill right she mm-hmm. she said the thing that got, got called anti-semitic that katie hopper defended and then they fired her over it so i guess i mean that was the last i've heard from her i don't think that's a, I, I would just believe that's such a personal ins- issue for her mm-hmm. i don't think there's nothing they could do to not make her always have that level of um you know come and support when someone is uh when it comes to like the palestine israel issue i just think it's too personal so i just think that's a bridge she i don't think she'll ever be willing to you know not cross but it's just i i think i'm i'm truly at the point where i really believe the only way that things are going to change is if Republicans just take control of everything and we just see because the Democrats can control everything and the progressive are just going to sit there and be like, oh, oh, well, yeah, I'm looking. It looks like Tlaib did great. Like she didn't it wasn't tough for her, which almost makes it even worse 
that she, you know, <laughs> if she's not actually being threatened, if her seat's not really critically being challenged, then it makes it even worse that she hasn't said much. But look, maybe she's maybe she's plotting on some stuff behind the scenes. Who are we to say? We know more if they came and talked to us. Yeah, but that to me is the problem. It's too much plotting behind the scenes. Yeah. Too much plotting behind the scenes. I want you to show your hands and be up front. And you know what? There's still Bernie Sanders and his old ass in here. I'm sorry. He is old. He's probably going to retire. And I don't know if he's setting up for the next person to take because he is a he, in Vermont. He can probably put whoever he wants in that seat. Is he going to put the most progressive person in that seat? He didn't do that with Peter. Was the Peter Welsh? I think is the person that got the seat after the guy retired. Yeah, I'm not sure. Can't remember, but that there was another person who was more progressive than Peter Welsh who wanted to run, but she didn't do because. Both of them endorsed, I believe, the guy named Peter Welsh. I'm not sure. But to me, I'm like, Bernie, like, you, are you going to put someone really young and progressive and, you know, maybe more firebrand than you were? I doubt it. I just, it, I'm literally at the point where it's like, oh, y'all are just, y'all, I, I won't say you, y'all have done, y'all have gone as far as y'all are willing to go. And I think it's time that y'all, if you're not willing to go any further, give it to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's these structural issues that it's not going to be like they I, I don't think that there is like someone made of stronger stuff that just magically is going to be able to withstand the four. I mean, this is, these are the conversations that we kept having with all of the candidates a few months ago. And, you know, you guys, we all seem to agree that even though they seemed like very nice people who really wanted the best, you know, structurally, they had they were up against a lot and they didn't seem to have given any thought to how they were going to overcome the structural barriers to actually having better outcomes in the squad. So, so I, like, I don't know. Like I, I do feel, I don't know. And I, I especially feel this way after talking to Clara today on the podcast, but I do feel like it's going to have to be something more. I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it. It's going to have to be a bigger kind of a more revolutionary movement than just an electoral one, just a matter of a, more than just a series of electoral losses for Democrats but ultimately will spark something more. And I have a lot more optimism about what might happen with like this railway strike, for instance, um, than just Democrats losing. Cause you know, Democrats lose. They don't really care. <laughs> they don't seem to care that much. I don't think, I don't think so. I really don't think they care if they lose or win. at the end of the day. Um, I think one of the only things we can, I think it has to come whether it's the DSA, whether it's the socialists, um, the, oh, I forget what the name of the other, the one that Shama's a, a part of. Um, the Socialist Alternative. Socialist Alternative. It seems to me that there we have to have some type of group or organization that allows their more, because that's what I've seen is like, you get these organizations and they quash their more radical members. They always, you know, the people who are willing to be like, nah, we need to go further. They quell them. And I just think that that's the issue right now. I think if the DSA, because I'm pretty sure the DSA have members, because I know that there was the rank and file seemed to be more supportive than forced to vote. Mm -hmm. If they had let those people really get their way, I think we would see something different from the squad. I think they would have kicked out Jamal Bum. I think they would have been like, AOC, either you do this or you leave. Because what's the point in you having you here? Yep. But yeah, but thanks for talking. It's been great. Same here, Eric. I always appreciate you. Bye-bye. Keep the faith. 
All right, Anthony, what's in your mind tonight? Oh, my gosh. Well, force the vote. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's a good topic. It's, I, see, I swear I'm not a troll. I, I didn't realize this was a force the vote episode to like an hour before we started recording. Yeah. Well, yeah, I see articles every day. Uh, Freedom Caucus, you know, they're going to give McCarthy a hard time. And then mm-hmm. today I see The Hill. Hey, that's your gig, right? Mm-hmm. The Hill. Uh, McCarthy expects multiple ballots or something to elect the speaker. So it's just a given that they're going to do it. And it's freaking hilarious that, I mean, the squad, it's just, they're just like rebranding liberals. It's kind of weird. It does feel that way, which almost makes it even more kind of pathetic that Jaya Paul made all those sacrifices and, and used the progressive brand and still wasn't even able to secure leadership. It's like if we're gonna if we're gonna be a villain, at least be a good villain. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well let's talk about that uh, letter. I think the letter sucked in the first place because they still wanted to send weapons, so you want to call for peace, but still send weapons. And I don't know the whole thing. It's ridiculous. Uh, I don't think the letter was good at all. I think, but from that position, you know, not from the, Mm -hmm. they should call for, they shouldn't be calling for peace. No, they shouldn't be saying weapons. That's what I think. (laughs) So I'm not giving them any credit for that. I'm not giving them any credit. Well, that's why it was so silly, right? That they were all complaining when the letter didn't actually advocate for any change in the status quo, like at all. Yeah, because they're just Democrats and they just got the, at least the 2018 squad just got their pensions. If they can just stick out the first year here, five years in Congress, they get their pension. So they don't care. That's what it is. No, it's obvious. I mean, who cares? I don't. Democrats. I haven't voted for a Democrat in a long time. Or voting. I don't even think voting counts. But freaking uh, Ryan Grimm and David Sirota. I mean, these guys are no gurus. They just have nerdy appeal. I mean, go to congress.gov, cspan.org and house.gov and you'll be as smart as uh, Grimm and Grimjob and Sirota. (laughs) Sorry, that's just what I think. I mean, I, I appreciate the perspective. And many of you obviously do and are. I don't have the bandwidth or the focus. <laughs> so I appreciate being able to just ask people questions in an interview format and, and cut to the chase without sifting through all that material. But, you know, I, I think that that's true to a certain degree and people need to feel more empowered to have these conversations and not rely on a small number of resources, which is why I absolutely adore Jen Briney and I'm so impressed with her uh, and her ability to pull so much from primary materials. But, you know, Jen, she releases an, an episode like what, every once every two weeks, you know, she's maybe once every month they're, they're spaced out because she's doing a lot of research for to and, and like basically writes out in scripts, these lengthy episodes that pack a huge punch, but it's, it, it's very time consuming and it's not like a news. It's not like newsy. It's, you know, she's not trying to keep up with, you know, everything that happens every week. She does deep dives, which are enormously valuable, but you know, everyone's got to kind of play their lane. Cause if, if everyone did what Jen's doing, like it would be a very different media climate you know you you get a lot less content generally which now that i say it out loud is maybe a good idea 
But um, did you have any uh, questions or, you know, other thoughts about the episode or anything else that's going on? Yeah, well, the, the one last thing. Imagine if they did force the vote back in 2021, three days before January 6th. I think it would have, uh, you know, taken some steam out of that event a few days later. So it could have changed history. But once again, uh, they failed us. Uh, I don't know. The episode was cool. Uh, I, I like insider politics. It's interesting. Don't agree with any of it. But yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> well, look, I, I'm glad you called. I always like hearing from you, Anthony. Take, take care. Keep the faith. Uh, Matthew Wolf, what's on your mind tonight? Uh, hey, good evening, Bree. Good evening. Um, yeah, uh, the more you mention Jen Briney, uh, yes, you, you can't say enough about her and Congressional Dish. Uh, I'm a subscriber to her channel, and it, even if she publishes twice a year, everyone who's listening to this right now should get on board and listen to that because you will never be more informed about what our con- Congress is doing and how they're wasting our money. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I just I have to jump on board and at least say that, if nothing else, please subscribe to her and listen to her. And I hope you get her on the podcast. It would be great. You should go on her podcast. I've, I've been actually urging her to uh, cooperate with you and with the Breaking Points people, anybody to get that message out there because there's so many independent media sources like yourself and her and Breaking Points and Kyle Kalinske and you can go Ben Burgess and Michael Brooks, rest in peace, um, that there's just so many independent uh, media sources that should be paid attention to because they go on those deep dives. And mm-hmm. you you claim to say that you're not doing that, but you are. I mean, you claim to say that you're sort of uh, too much bandwidth and this or that, but we see what you're doing and we appreciate it. And even if all you can do is give voice to those other people who are, who are doing that work. I mean, it's all, it's all collaborative. It's all beautiful. And it's all something that people need to make our government work. So speaking of our, so speaking of our government, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to keep rambling. Go Unless ahead. You, Go for it. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep rambling. I have some things written down here because I've, I've been listening to callers and I love the episode today with Ryan Grimm. Um, so um, is uh, so a question I want to ask is, is our government, is it ready to be toppled by it? Like a true populist movement? Be- and I'm, 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 paraf- I'm setting that up with, with the lack of trust in our institutions, with the lack of our trust in media, with the lack of our trust in corporate corporations, which is a new poll that came out. And I'm not remembering where I heard this from, but that uh, trust in corporations is an all time low trust mm. in unions is an all time high. There's this populist movement that seems ready to just start tipping things over with, within our government. Is that possible? It, and, and, <laughs> um, and when you and you get to the point where these celebrity politicians, when 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 Mrs. Balinski, excuse me, and that's Miss Crystal Ball, by the way, I'm just joking because I hear these people hours on end, so I cast jokes. But her paraphrase today, she was saying that when people are voting for the Squad or the Democratic Progressive Caucus, it's no different than voting for your your basic corporatist Democrat. Because they're not doing anything different. There's no teeth within these people. So where is that populist movement that's going to, when is that movement going to arise and knock over this, uh, this mainstream, corporate, moderate, Republican establishment that's holding us down? 
Sorry, I'm going to stop rambling. Well, yeah. So first of all, if anything, it's Mr. Ball. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I meant (laughs) Mr. Don't don't do that. <laughs> don't do that to Crystal. If anything, <laughs> she brings. Oh, well, she I brings kid, it. I kid. She um, brings it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I look. I I understand that there were some you know disagreements on the foreign policy front. I've seen them a bit in the comments. I I have to confess, I haven't been like I haven't heard heard much of their coverage of of um, Crystal and Sire's coverage of Ukraine. I. I I generally do. I have heard some of Kyle's. I, I, I my understanding is that he is much um, kind of more supportive of um, both. What are they calling it? Defensive aid, um, weapons, and uh, uh, humanitarian aid uh, than other parts of the left are. Than I think I am, um, and that's kind of the point of disagreement. Um, what, what, I'm sorry. What is, what is the actual? What's the question? I'm just wondering if a populist movement is going to. Oh, if they're ready. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so funny to be in this position because when I was thinking along these terms a couple of years ago and and having all of these guests on the podcast like um, uh, Jane McAlevey, the feeling, the pushback that I got was very much like, no, we are not ready. Mm. And I cooled my jets and I was like, okay. But, it, but the, back then my question was like, how do we get ready? How do we exploit the uh, the populist moment more? And how do we use the edge that is the George Floyd protests and these elections and all of this mm-hmm. angst? And once it's like, how do we leverage that to get people more ready? And two years later, I don't know that we are ready. And again, I can't wait for you guys to listen to this upcoming episode because this Obama interview <laughs> this one clip of Obama in this Trevor Noah interview, I think, speaks volumes about the level of propaganda that Americans are still being fed, fed about how there is no better alternative. And I think one of the mm-hmm. biggest barriers to a revolution being successful or, many, you know, everybody kind of buying into the idea of really significant change is that folks know they want to fuck stuff up, but they don't know exactly where to land. And mm. a lot of people, even though they would be willing to, let's say, march in the street for social justice and change – to use the analogy of the 2020 protest, they're a little more hesitant about throwing the Molotov cocktail at the Bank of America if the consequence is going to be that they just go to jail and the Bank of America gets reopened a month later. Yeah. They, they want to know that there's someplace else to land and they need to be able to visualize what that alternative is. And, and the thing with this interview that like made me so crazy was that Trevor raises, like he's like, it, aren't we just on a trajectory toward better economic systems and shouldn't we be open to what those are? And Obama was like, absolutely not. And, and make painted this really absurdist vision of what socialism is. Um, and that's like, like it or not, that's where a lot of Americans are where even, and even Trevor Noah, who I think did a good job raising this issue in the first place in the interview, you know, he didn't really know, like he wasn't in a position where he felt confident enough or whatever to really push Obama on, no, 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 there's actually other systems and alternatives, and you're misrepresenting what those are. So I think that's the task. It is helping people to realize that when the Fed says the only way out is raising interest rates and raising unemployment and crushing the working working people, that mm. that is not actually true. But who's going to tell them that? Who's going to say there's any alternative? There's nowhere. There's nowhere to look in the mainstream media sphere that will tell you any alternative story about how this could go. No. There's no, there's no one who's ever going to say, well, what, what if we limit consumption by taxing the rich? 
Isn't this a yeah. good time for a wealth tax? What about military spending's effect on inflation? Is anyone going to talk about that? No. So, like, if if there were a world where people could see, oh, it's not just like you know, uh, five year plans and people being shipped off to a gulag. It's um, workers' collective. It's mm-hmm. it's you know, there's there's democratic democratic economic systems that we can't even put our brains on in this country. I I think that we would be ready if we had that kind of language. But I feel like I'm just learning that kind of language. Um, yeah. And that and no. I think that we can be there quickly, uh, relatively quickly. But that that to me seems to be the tipping the the the, the thing that needs to be done, the outstanding Perfect. project. No, no, that's perfect. Because I think you're right. I think if we had that language, it w- we would be on the precipice. But I think that's why I'm raising the question is I feel like we're getting that language based on the distrust. I feel if someone were feeding them the message you just told them, you told us that Obama was trying to give, they were, they're not going to trust that message. They see what's going on. They recognize that the, the Fed raising interest rates isn't in their benefit. And by the, them, I mean a working class folk, whoever that is, wherever that is. Geographically, it almost doesn't matter at this point. We're all getting crushed. We're all feeling the squeeze. It's all, it's painful for everybody. Uh, More so for some, more so than others. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, it's hurting everybody and we're all feeling it. And that's something we can all rally behind. And that's where I, I, I get to this, the populist message, because let's try to steer back to something we've talked about already in this episode, the Matt, the Matt Gates quotes. Those are fairly populist points that he's that he's laying out there. Now, granted, we should stop pretending the Internet doesn't exist and we should hold his feet to the fire by all accounts. And that includes everybody in the Congress, every any populist, you know, don't lambast and, and hate the guy for whatever issues he had down in Florida. I don't know what that was. Supposedly he was cleared of those charges. They were ugly, but whatever. But if he's going to be in Congress and say those things, hold him to account. All Everybody hold him to account. Point him out for the fraud that he is if he doesn't genuinely pursue these things. Because I honestly feel that that those things would help our government function more transparently and more efficiently. And that's really what a populist movement needs. It's, a, it's an efficient government. That's going to do what it says, provide the freedoms to the state or wherever or federally. Anyways, I'm, I'm going to get distracted by that. But yeah, I just feel like yeah. it, uh, the squad members working with the supposed freedom lovers on the right side of the aisle and holding them to the account is going to is going to cleanse a lot of Congress and and. Uh, let any populist movement flourish based on they're going to see who the phonies are. Anyways, go, go, run with that, yeah, please. A hundred percent. I'm I'm totally with you, Matthew. I'm totally with you. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Good. Have a good night. Good night. Keep the faith. Hey, Jonathan, what's in your mind today? Hey, alas, Shahid is late, but he was basically <laughs> candidate I have ever seen running for. The House that could have answered those questions you were asking those candidates in that candidate forum uh, correctly, like they would have had an answer for that. Mm-hmm. Like that's the that I've ever seen that actually had a plan for disruption. But uh, also, I gotta say, like your your learning curve never ceases to amaze me. Like you clearly, I can tell reading between the lines, you got everything that you could possibly. I could possibly have wanted you to get out of that Clara Matei interview. 
And oh, good. Like, that, <laughs> like, because I mean, like, she, like that, it really blew my mind. And like, you, once you see it there, so many other things fall into place and you start seeing connections to that uh, pretty much everywhere, including, you know, some of it, like I even got echoes of it in the Ryan Grimm interview when you guys were, we're talking about uh, the level of kabuki theater and straw men and paper mache obstacles they set up to, you know, so that they won't have to do the things that they said they're going to do, but they don't really want to do. And the mm-hmm. way everything is actually handled in a back room and not in an open vote. It's mm-hmm. the removal of uh, basically the removal of policymaking and accountability from, from democratic accountability so that they can go and do things that they know are going to be unpopular or hurt people. A lot of these austerity type policies, you know, including uh, the withholding of, of, you know, basic assistance that people are demanding. And, you know, even it seems like the, the squad is sucked up in it at this point. Yep. Or, you know, tacitly, you know, condoning by their silence, you know? So yeah, I, I loved talking to her today, by the way, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. I, I hope that she's able to come back. We had a hard out at an hour um, and I could have gone for another hour with her, but per Jonathan's recommendation, everybody really should go listen to that macro and cheese interview. And I was trying to make, knowing that so many of you have listened to it, I was trying not to make it too duplicative of that interview. So you know, I, I think they're great companion pieces. You're not like cannibalizing the bad faith episode. You're not going to get a lot of redundancy. So enjoy both. <laughs> yeah, I hope you do get to interview her again. Like there's there's just like there's so many connections to so many other things. Like you really can go on for uh, quite a long time. It connects to so much of, of what we talk about here. Mm-hmm. But that Ryan Grimm interview also was really good. I'm glad you guys did that. Uh, like, I feel like he knows a lot of things and he's fundamentally a good person with good instincts, but he doesn't always follow those things that he knows to their logical conclusion or make connections between those things that he knows in the right way. And I feel like, and I feel like it happened to a certain degree the last time you talked to him too. Like there were a lot of things that you kind of tied together for him. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, that is true. <laughs> And, you know, like, I, I do feel like sometimes, like, he comes out of those interviews with a better analysis of what's going on than he did when he went in, even though he, he knows this vast assortment of facts. Like, he's not, like, that's the one thing he's failing to do. He's failing to connect the wires in, in just the right way. So I feel like progress was made there. And, yeah, you know, just so the things that he, yeah, yeah. conceded. I think the thing is, I am, I am like openly an ideologue. <laughs> um, and I think that Ryan, probably more professionally, appropriately so, is more of a journalist. And I started writing because I had an agenda, very openly so. <laughs> like, my agenda was that I didn't like the coverage I was seeing, so I was going to start writing. And, you know, Ryan's been in the biz a, long, a lot longer and, you know, tends not to write with with like takes front of mind like with the position front of mind although you know broadly obviously covering the left and being you know sympathetic to the left so i do think that you know i i i am gonna like i i i know that my talent is not being able to recount facts 
knowing history, knowing theory, it's analysis. So my ideal situation is to be part of a um, Power Rangers style, RMP, RIP, by the way, the Green Ranger, but to be part of a Power Rangers style cyborg where I get to like put Ryan in a little head bit, but control <laughs> all of the arms and legs and go around and kicking ass with the, the, with the knowledge bases provided by him and some of these other people. And I don't really have the expectation yes. of him that he is going to be like my arm with the sword in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And that's like, that's often what I say about he and Sirota, uh, you know, is, is kind of like, that's not, that's not what their strength is, but you know, maybe use Voltron as an example instead. Cause Haim Saban, the guy that created power Rangers is one of APAC's biggest donors. And what? Uh, one of the most aggressive behind the scenes, uh, like the the seminar that back when I you know I didn't always have good politics. I used to be an APAC trained campus advocate, and the seminars that I would get sent to, and the people who would pay for my plane tickets and my hotel to go up there was the Saban Center for Middle East Studies, and that's uh, Chaim Saban, the the Power Rangers guy. What? Look at this! You're completely right. I always thought the Power Rangers was like, um, you know, some like Japanese or Chinese like cartoon, like some show that got. That's what I initially thought too. West. Because that, like the because the the quality of the footage was so like Godzilla esque. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's what I thought too. But then, yeah, that's that's how I found out was I was getting all these things from Saban Center for middle east studies and it was explained to me oh that's the guy that created mighty morphin power rangers i'm like really so he purchased i'm sorry and i'm just like in his wikipedia page he's the 232nd richest person in america which at, at 2.8 billion dollars which is like there are a lot of people who have billions of dollars just nutty yeah, like people don't realize how many zeros that is like that's more money than i could spend in a lifetime Oh, if I tried, if I did it full time, yeah, oh, there's yeah, there's a sizable population of Jews from Middle Eastern ancestry that are, um, you know, in that area and that made their way here to make their fortune. He had Inspector Gadget too. He Man, Shira. <laughs> that was bought later. Uh, yeah. Then his company became known for the production of Power Rangers, Ninja Turtles, and Big Bad. Beetleborgs, which I can't say I'm familiar with. I can't either, but those were all old franchises that he bought up later. He-Man was around when I was a little kid, and it was done yeah, by Hasbro yeah. and, and whatever. The toy companies put those out. Uh, but yeah, he, he definitely bought all those up. Like he's Yeah, he's, he's loaded, and he's a big, big, big donor to APAC and APAC Super PAC and all those people that were trying to undermine Summer Lee and mm -hmm. Rec Nina Turner's campaign, like he's mm. yeah, he's given money to all those. Fascinating. So maybe Voltron instead of Power Rangers. Okay, <laughs> Voltron is the goal. Thank you, thank you for that, Jonathan. I know you had a question for um, Shahid, but is he is he in the chat? And I'm not seeing it. Shahid, if you're in the chat, oh, I see you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here we go. Um, invite to speak. Hey, I'm sorry I missed you there. I'm, but I'm glad I I I found you before Jonathan left because I think he had a question for you. Uh, Shahid, I'm inviting you up to speak. So you should accept it and unmute yourself. There you go. Can you unmute yourself? There's a little mute button in the bottom left. 
at least from my perspective. It's like a little microphone that I think looks like corn. <laughs> oh dear. Well, if it takes too long, you can you can just uh, send me pack. And I was basically going to ask him what I about what I mentioned in the beginning because he was the only candidate I've ever heard that uh, ever had any kind of a strategy, including like a kamikaze mission if it had to be. But uh, you know, a strategy for you know what kinds of things he would do once he got in to deal with the kinds of of structural impediments that uh, he knew were going to get thrown his way. He was the only one with a realistic assessment of what was going to happen when he went in there. Like he was, he was ready for war basically. And, uh, you know, I thought maybe I could get him to uh, elaborate on some of that, but uh, whenever he gets unmuted, uh, he can always address it later and you can, you can take poor Sly here. Who's been waiting patiently. <laughs> Wait, Sly's next. Oh yeah. Sly's next. Sly. Okay. So I'm, I'll go ahead to, to, to Sly. Shahid. Can you hear oh. me now? Yes. Oh yes. Oh, Thank goodness. I'm glad to see you, Shahid. I'm really glad to see you too. Thank you. You're so sweet. I appreciate your perspective, feedback. Uh, you honor me. I, I'm blushing at the moment. Um, <laughs> there's so many things I want to address, including the Ryan Brianna Voltron image. Is amazing. <laughs> Someone should design that. I think that's going to be a really incredible meme. <laughs> right? um, have a whole Substack article about Ryan not connecting the dots between his own analyses. Um, he had the, a pair of great pieces uh, over the last six months. I'm not sure if these are the ones you were talking to him about, but the one about um, you know APAC buying Democratic primaries and then elephants in the Zoom a few months ago. And he sort of paints this picture of the sort of institutional entrenchment of the corporate military industrial wing of the party and observes any number of instances of racist accusation, Islamophobic suggestion, but you know doesn't actually name the dynamic that he's documenting. And in doing so, I think ultimately, you know, I don't want to say does it a favor because he's done more to expose it, I think, than anyone. Uh, while you know, sort of indulging it at the margin by declining to name. What he's describing, I mean, to, to a journalist's credit, you might hope that your readers are smart enough to connect the dots, but in a country this ignorant, you know, I fear that it might be a hope misplaced. Um, mm -hmm. But to Jonathan's point in terms of like, you know, game plan going in, my vision was particularly oversight of the intelligence and the military uh, establishment. I, I had this vision that, you know, Gravel did this in a previous era and it begat the Pentagon Papers. Mm -hmm. I know that there are whistleblowers in Washington and they need someone who's going to take the stuff that they bring forward and not just fight for their rights, like most members of Congress, you know, adamantly refuse to do, but particularly take what they bring forward and run with it. And I think most whistleblowers, you know, whistleblowers out of like the Department of Energy or Agriculture or Education, they can get heard. Whistleblowers out of DOD they never get hurt, you know, like they don't have the same rights as whistleblowers from other, particularly whistleblowers from intelligence um, mm. agencies don't have the same rights as other ones. And so like, you know, I think about Ellsberg, I think about Snowden and a member of Congress who is willing to back up those voices can do mad damage to the establishment mm. if they're willing to give up their career for it. You know, and I was going in to be Cynthia McKinney, like I have no interest in spending a lifetime in Congress. I only mm. ran because a corrupt oligarch represents my city. 
and is getting you know shouted out for passing the baton when she's basically like ensuring continuity by handpicking successors who are dedicated to the same vision. If there was any point in your previous discussion that I described as maybe charitable, you were talking about the sort of like the entrenchment piece of it uh, and the uh, impediments put up to progressive policies. The part that Pelosi personifies is the self-enrichment brand of emoluments violation, corruption, insider trading, you know, just, just watching people getting rich mm -hmm. off of denying people basic human rights, like the right to get medicine if you're sick, is to me grotesque. And it's not even like that's one layer of madness. To me, the even more offensive one is the legions of journalists who fawn over her and indulge this open corruption for decades. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the analogy I fell into in a previous conversation was like, you know, there's been somebody robbing the bank out at like noon every day for years. And, you know, the cops like roll out the red carpet and serve them champagne. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, like that's the role of journalists with this effectively bipartisan kleptocracy. And it amazes me to watch so many Americans get up in arms about the future of our democracy and our democracy this and our democracy that, as if, you know, that ship didn't run into a shoal a long ass time ago mm -hmm. and when when it's the democrats who are doing things like you know finding every pretext for weapon sales they can find around the world democrats who are subsidizing fossil fuel companies and democrats who are in bed with every surveillance program you can imagine democrats who are championing refund the police you know like the it, it does just beg the question what exactly is the ultimate point and, and mm -hmm. like you know of course the court matters and um you know, that can get us talking about Joe Biden and Clarence Thomas. Like, there's just so many mirrors to stand between here. But the role of the party, I I look at, you know, the opportunity to go to Congress is very much um, informed by the experiences of the civil rights leaders who went in and became the Congressional Black Caucus, basically co-opted by mm -hmm. the establishment that they went in to try to fight. And, you know, the only way, I think, to make any meaningful headroom on policy there is to be combative and to align with the parts of the bureaucracy that have information that need to get out. And, you know, that war, that's how the Vietnam War ended. That's how the mass surveillance regime got exposed. Well, there wasn't a member of Congress. That's why Snowden's in exile mm. um, instead of in a, you know, witness hearing chair where he should be, but um, I digress. So, I mean, Shed, when you, when you watch the last week or so's media cycle and you, watch the coverage of Nancy Pelosi stepping down from leadership, not from her seat. <laughs> um, and the coverage of her likely successors and Hakeem Jeffries, the extent to which the coverage is not, I would argue, substantive in terms of policy and what it will mean for the interests of progressives the way that Hakeem Jeffries is being described as progressive in so many outlets. Oh I mean, what, yeah. what do you, what do you make of it all? Like, what is your reaction? This is manufactured consent. We're just watching propaganda in, you know, real time. I, the idea, first of all, that her successor is Hakeem Jeffries as opposed to her daughter, you know, I, this is all through, I see it through the fairly clear, um, machination. Pelosi herself found her way to Congress in a special election mm -hmm. that was basically um, 
you know, called by her predecessor. Um, and she, I think, wants to set up the same thing for her daughter. Mm. And this, I've seen so many, when I was running against her, an actual candidate in a race on a ballot, seen so many journalists from the LA Times to Politico write about Pelosi's successor now, presuming that she was retiring, basically writing works of fiction instead of journalism. And when I, you know, prognosticating about a future that I could have told you, I mean, any fool could see that she can cling to power as long as she can. And I don't think that her passing the gavel in any way, you know, resigns it because she's still going to have the fundraising network. She's still going to be a, you know, queen or kingmaker behind the scenes. And I think she'll have much less of the accountability that came with being the face of the party. So if anything, I think her new posture could be more powerful than the one she left mm. to use a, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know if this is in politic or not, but like, I think she went from being Darth Vader before to becoming Emperor of Alpatine. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> you get the reference, right? And I, I think the, the role of the press, I just keep coming back to in all this because, and, and, and when you ask me what I think of the news cycle, I just see such sycophants masquerading as journalists. And I, and I basically see access journalism as the business of journalism and it having consumed the ethical profession that used to be committed to transparency and accountability. And when you were talking before about, you know, constructing a vision of socialism that people can get behind, um, advocating for progressive ideals. So much of what I found myself doing was just trying to hold corruption accountable. And that, frankly, is a message that I think resonates across the ideological spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so much is bound up in it because when you think about corruption in a systemic way, just as embedded in conflicts of interest, everybody in Congress is up to their necks in them. And what, what it ultimately points to is Wall Street and capital. And so it's, it's like a back end way of addressing capitalism and calling it out without falling into the ism trap and, you mm -hmm. know, triggering all the cognitive dissonance that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you know, it plays into the populist sort of tide because everybody knows, frankly, that the system, whatever one means to encompass within those air quotes, is corrupt. And so it's just a matter of putting wheels on the car. You know, like, well, here's a few examples of how it's corrupt, mm -hmm. right? The policymakers are on the take. Like they make money when the enterprises make money. So when they pass laws, they're not looking out for you. They're looking out for the corporations that are also funding the PACs that are buying their elections, <laughs> you know, and like this laying out that case, the conflicts of interest, the corruption implicit within it. And, you know, again, what, what sort of, you know, drives me to some despair over the future of our vaunted democracy is the fact that the press is in on it. And as a structural vector, reinforcing corruption openly. And, and if you have the press organs that are supposed to be levers of accountability, papering over the kind of corruption that looks like decades of insider trading at the people's expense, you know, papering over a climate justice legacy that looks like Congress still investing $20 billion a year in public money into fossil fuel extraction companies, uh, you know, one war after another, with no particular end in sight, you know, mm -hmm. pretext to sell some weapons to somebody. Woo. And then you, and you watch the press get whipped into a frenzy about whatever that flavor du jour is, you know, and just the capacity of this country to be hoodwinked for, for a place with such resources to be so ignorant is painful. 
to witness. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm just raising my voice, writing on Substack, making some music. Like, I, I kind of feel like it's other people's problem now. I kind of feel like I did what I could. So I also have some sort no, of... No, shit, you, sort of can't, you can't abandon us. And if there's any way for me to ever be helpful, I will jump at it. I just don't think, at least in the capacity I was exploring, you know, they, they slipped my tendons. Um, yeah, so your your fully electoral politics is that it's not going to happen that way. Your your team, you did your I best, and you saw how they weaponized him. Sorry, I just got off the phone. I don't see the space for it. I just got off the phone with Matthew Ho, who I don't also know mm-hmm. you, you know, and mm-hmm. thank you for you know shouting him out and covering him and like just trading notes with him and others, and just you know the in every race where the establishment faces a threat, the one through thread that connects them all is lies that get manufactured in response. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he was dealing with lies about supposed like ballot access fraud that was manufactured. Mm -hmm. I was dealing with like all kinds of that hominid stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, Nina's dealing with, you know, she's not a Democrat. Mm -hmm. There was a, there's a principal at a PR firm, a PR firm whose work Ryan Grimm observes in his articles, but who he declines to name called SKDK. Their clients include the president of the United States, the vice president, Pelosi, the entire Democratic leadership. And they've been instrumental in every one of these character assassination hit jobs around the country. And so Ryan observes this dynamic, chalks it up to APAC, what I think is ultimately a strategy of senior Democratic leadership, effectuated by a PR firm with names and people, you know, with careers. And I just, it, the business of it, obscuring anything relating to the principle of it and how that subverted all the points in the Rube Goldberg machine that is democracy, you know? Like, ideally the whistleblower comes forward with the information, the press prints the thing, and then Congress can hold the hearing and then people get enraged and then maybe you swing a couple elections about it and then there's some legislation and then you have hearings and something passes and the president signs a bill into law and then bam, something's different in the world. But like, at every point in that chain, the system is broken. And yeah, I wouldn't say that, you know, it's not to say that the, how do I put it? And I think, you know, you're in a similar, at least um, in some ways we're in a similar place insofar as the, the centrality of organizing on the ground to shifting the power equation, just literally creating nodes of organized people who themselves become then carrots to institutional power holders, you know, sticks to the ones who are unhelpful is building power in the base up is ultimately the key. And that comes down to, you know, my most inspiring example that I see looking out at the world about this is the ALA and the way that the Amazon labor uh, union emerged. And just that's, Mm. you know, retail politicking, like talking to people, getting relationships and like in building relationships that are more than pretexts to pitch a thing. You know, and like community level, community building with a liberatory purpose, I think is ultimately, you know, essentially like, like the Panthers and their whole vision. And um, I don't have any answers as to how to make that happen. Um, it's also so interesting that the ALA, like the, the Amazon union, that they started their own union, that they didn't join mm-hmm. a pre-existing shop. That does seem to be... No one's really put a fine point, at least no one that I've spoken to, such a fine point on what that means and like what the why of that um, and the role that played in their successes. 
but it does strike me after having a series of somewhat frustrating conversations with kind of professional organizers, it, it, it made a certain kind of sense to me, but I can't prove anything and don't want to be unnecessarily disparaging. But there is, there's, there's something that feels so um, defeatist about all institutions, even ones that are kind of left and ideologically aligned. Um, that's, that's causing people to just, what, what it feels like is that the, the co-option co has been so efficient in so many sectors that even the good guys can't be counted on. And I think that's why, that's why the frustration with independent media, the frustration with people like Ryan Grimm, the frustration with the squad, it is neither, it's no longer about who's like good or bad. Like people just have a, people are increasingly having just a different kind of analysis that says, there's not, you don't, you no longer have the free agency to be good or people at least don't perceive themselves as having the power to do the right thing anymore. And it's not even worth having a conversation about individual merit. We're just over these institutions. People are over the Democratic Party, the party, they're over electoralism. They're over huge sections of the media. They're over the corporate media entirely. But that also leaves you feeling kind of isolated and rudderless because we haven't done as much as we should have, and kudos to people who are doing that work, but as much as we should have to create the kinds of independent organizations like the kinds that the Panthers had and that are rooted in mutual aid and longer-term relationships with communities. I don't know. I fully agree with you that there's a, it's a disillusioning vision to sort of come to recognize is how vapid are so many of the theatrics that pass for politics and and i i think particularly you know the the dynamic in electoral politics that i think is like you know the one ring to rule them all is money at the end of the day mm -hmm. so like just what we're talking about is capitalism and all, all of the granularity we might introduce about you know buckley versus vallejo and citizens united and the fec regulation this and that like what we're ultimately just talking about is capitalism eating democracy and that's the story of american politics over the last 70 years Mm -hmm. Eisenhower called it out, you know, when he talks about a military industrial complex, that's what he was talking about. And, you know, what happens when capital is allowed to accrete relentlessly, it turns fascist. And that's, we're seeing that too. And, you know, it is a runaway train as far as I can tell. And it's bipartisan aspect to me is particularly revolting. You know, like we have choices between different flavors of fascism. It can either be overt or it can be, you know, just like, uh, it can be stylish and eat nice ice cream, you know, like that's, that's the choice mm -hmm. that you have. The better I'm call also training. irritated by Joe Biden's ice cream eating. <laughs> I mean, right? It's just like, come on people. Like it's folks in the street. And I just like, you know, I, the, this also goes back, I think to like the Obama era and Democrats having learned more or less nothing in the years since and attempting to just recycle the playbook from them, like every video that has like Biden and Kamala walking in slow motion, putting on their shades is less like, come on, people, are you serious? Like, and like, you know, that might have worked for him, but I don't think you could just recycle the playbook with anybody with a three syllable name, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> slap a, you know, teleprompter on and like rinse and repeat. It doesn't quite work like that. Well, they're gonna they're gonna keep trying it as long as they have these perceived successes. Let me let me bring up the next caller because we do have a bit of a cue and let's see what um Wait. Sylvester has to say for us. Thank you again, Jonathan. Um, what's on your mind, slide? Well, I, well, I'm here for y'all standing on top of y'all soapboxes. 
Uh, <laughs> we'll go ahead and say that. Definitely been loving everything I've been hearing. Um, is, it, is it fair to say that Joe Biden has co-opted ice cream then? <laughs> I mean, he can have ice cream because, you know, I'm a, I'm a dairy-free queen. I never liked ice dairy. cream. I never liked ice cream myself. So, uh, you never liked ice cream? No, I'm joking. I'm about to say that was about to be suspect on, a, on another level, another <laughs> level semester. We could still be friends. He's co-opted. What is that? Sorry, um, there's a little bit of background. Corn pop. Yes, you got it. You got me. Corn. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, what, what's on your mind tonight, Sylvester? You, you know what? It was actually, uh, you know, because y'all kind of touched on it a little bit, but did. Did you hear the uh, John Stewart interview with the, uh, with, with Condi and Condi? I think that's what they call it. I hate. I don't know why that that sounds real, you know, in the house to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. My mom used to have this like obsession with like not picking a name that sounded too much like a slave name. <laughs> yeah, you know, Con- and then it's all like she was speaking for it. Like I, I don't know. It just didn't really. Yeah, it, it rubbed me. It rubbed me the wrong way. But you, you heard that interview, right? So I haven't listened to it yet. I saw uh, that Kyle had covered it on his show. It came up on my like YouTube recommends, but I haven't watched it. What, what, what are we missing? I also have not Did you see it. the look? Y'all both have. I almost feel like y'all should play a little bit of the because they put well, a it's little... long. It's like forty-five minutes. So what? No, part... no, no, no. <laughs> John Stewart put out like a. A little five minute. You ain't even got to play the whole five minutes, even though I feel like it'd be pretty. Like on Twitter? Yeah, on Twitter. Okay. Yeah, he put out he put out a little clip, but even just the little clip of it, I thought that he put it out, and it was gonna be one of those things where like, okay, he's putting out the part where he doesn't do any pushback and it's just nodding through all their lies to like get people to click it, and then when you listen to the whole thing, he's gonna like jump on them at some point, right? That's what I good faith i was trying to do mm-hmm. come to find out he was just nodding through the whole thing really I'm sure it was. okay wait a minute wait a John, minute here, see the play, play the clip okay wait a minute just very briefly on libya because that was on my watch um but this is not again no no but, my, not, I want, yeah. but i want to make a larger point because yeah. you know Gaddafi was a bad actor. Everybody knew he was a bad sure. actor and he threatened to kill his people by cockroaches the united states was actually the supporter of European countries through NATO and the Arab League, which for the very first time came and said, we want to be part of trying to protect the people of Libya now. So I feel that that particular intervention, we had certain capabilities militarily that nobody else had, which we used to assist them. But, you know, the Emiratis were flying and the Jordanians were flying, et cetera. The problem, and this is where I think you, you make a really good point. The problem is, okay, Gaddafi's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, his horrible prisons are emptied. What comes next? Right. That's what comes next? And that's, that, that's always a problem that's, because there's yeah. always a vacuum. Uh, because, look, dictators don't allow institutions to, uh, to flourish. So when you take the mm. dictator out, there are no institutions. That's right. So that's – 
But the question becomes, do you then say, let Gaddafi go ahead and kill his people because it's going to be hard afterwards? Or in our case, uh, we thought Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Are you going to let that continue or are you going to take him out? And then do the best that you can in helping people to recover. You have to recognize that it's going to be hard once you take the dictator out. But, John, it's a little bit of a false choice to say, well, then just leave the dictator in place because it won't be chaotic. It may not but be chaotic. That, I guess it, what it I'm saying is... It may not be chaotic, if we take but that it might role be brutal on, against the people. If we take that role on, can we sustain as a country? You know, when you think about the Soviet Union's collapse, they overextended and they got in an arms race with us and they had all these satellites. Are we overextending America's power, especially militarily when you talk about an $800 billion defense budget. Let's assume instead of, instead of being in a podcast studio, we were yes. in a situation, right? Or, you know, in the tank, in the Defense Department, wherever we were. Right. Okay. And we're saying, okay, what do you see on the horizon? Well, right. North Korea is shooting these, these missiles. missiles over our ally, Japan. Right. Um, China is trying to build up its uh, blue water navy so that it can compete with us anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. You've got, you know, the Russia-China relationship. It's tricky, but we have to watch it really carefully because we don't know where that might lead. Uh, we've got Iran, still a very bad actor, and probably in addition to killing their people, will cause some external problems in order to take people's minds off it. We have a lot of issues. So, do we just sit back and hope for the best or do we try to be positioned mm -hmm. in enough places with enough support that we can be a good ally to those who are counting on and, us? And you have to watch the potential rise of terrorism again. So you have a lot on your plate. But I, I would just say, uh, should the United States be selective in the use of its military power? Right. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Uh, after Afghanistan and Iraq, which we did for security reasons, not because we wanted to spread democracy at gunpoint, but for security reasons. This time. <laughs> Although ultimately we were told that spreading democracy would make the world safer because well, actually, freer countries would Well, I think if, you, if you actually look at the record, uh, Democrat, uh, Democratic countries actually don't invade their neighbors. Democratic countries don't harbor <laughs> terrorists. Uh, Democratic <laughs> countries don't use weapons of mass destruction. So I think they I don't have a It'd be hard to, I mean, that but John, was planned but, in but Germany. But they're not aided. They're not aided. I understand what you're saying. But always try to look at the converse, right? Yes. Uh, just because uh, they have, in some of these weak states, terrorists among them, would you rather have somebody who's actually harboring them and assisting understood. them? Understood. So, so, uh, so that's the first point. The second point is that, yes, we need to be more selective, mm -hmm. but I would be the strongest voice, as I know Hillary is, when Vladimir Putin decides to extinguish his neighbor. Should the United States really just step back from that and say, well, you know, that's kind of your business after all. Ukraine's been a part of the Russian Empire and so forth. And there are some people in the United States who would say, not in Ukraine, let's do it in Des Moines. And I think that, exactly is, right. that is the more, that's the bigger threat that the United States will not feel the, uh, that the American people will not feel the pull to continue to be the place that people can look when something awful like that but happens. But is it then the difference between the first Gulf War, which is Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait and the United States forms a coalition and helps push him out, versus the United States deciding these bad actors. You know, we really are the only country. It's not that other people don't meddle, but we're the only country that 
actively promotes regime change. Oh boy. Okay, Shahid, shoot your, say your truth. Sorry, go ahead, Sylvester. <laughs> nah, I'm just thinking, where was Ja? Because I felt like he was the only one <laughs> that would have asked the questions that needed to be asked. He wouldn't have been nodding. Okay. <laughs> I'll go, Shahid, you go ahead. But I'm just, where was Ja? I, I was going to say, I felt absurdist coming at the end when you're talking about the United States is the only you know country that presumes the right to pursue regime change. I mean, yeah, he could have been more forceful about it earlier, but he, you know, I was I was glad to hear that point get made in the discussion after someone was talking about democracies not supposedly invading their neighbors. You know, like talk to Cuba about that or Grenada right. or we, Haiti. We, oh, democracies don't use weapons of mass destruction. Was there some other country that dropped an atom bomb that I don't know about? Right, and and every time that he would make a little question, they had whatever little propaganda lie that they've been telling for the last two decades would say it, and then he would just nod his head again. So, oh, yeah. okay, I did, I understand. Okay, I didn't look at it that way. Yeah, you know, it was, that, it was the thing is, that for forty-five to minutes. call these people out is like a professional job, which is why we know we used to have journalists who do it. Yeah, and it, I think he'd be the first person to say. I've even heard him talk about how ridiculous it is that comedians are doing the job that journalists are mm-hmm. supposed to. And so, you know, it's like if you're if you're the job of journalism to some extent, among other things, is supposed to be parsing these people's words and holding their feet to the fire and bringing up examples in the past when they might have been talking out of both sides of their mouths, you know, doing that kind of accountability, adversarial interrogation on the public's behalf. And imagine exactly- if it were like Chris Hedges. Ooh. Right? Ooh. <laughs> Yo, bro, you're making me hot right now. <laughs> and imagine if Henry Kissinger was in the room with Hillary. Don't <laughs> tell me for a good time. <laughs> oh, I would, I would, I would pay um, primetime boxing fees to watch that one. Yeah, no, we gonna we gonna need. I would, I would pay Ticketmaster fees to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor Swift. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no. but it's just like wow. So you go, you go, you go, you you gonna talk about? You said Gaddafi and his the prisoners, his prisons. We got the most prisoners on the planet. You gonna talk about? You know, people don't just invade other countries after we just left this country that mm-hmm. you know Afghanistan after two decades. You gonna talk about? Oh well, North Korea is testing this. We have how many military bases across the world, and how often are we testing those weapons mm-hmm. that we got? Thank you. And just There's to like this, take a step. Yeah, go ahead. On it. Well, no, 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 go that, ahead. All right. Well, the, 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 when, when they're talking about Iraq and Afghanistan being done for security, while Ooh. we tortured some folks in the process and a few million died and we destroyed the civilian infrastructure of one of the oldest civilizations in human history mm-hmm. and, you know, looted the antiquities. And like, it's just like so many layers of offensive, the blithe, ignorance in that interview about the ultimate impacts of what were openly imperial projects corporate neo-imperial projects so like subtly subtly distinguished from the overtly imperial projects of the past and you know colonial powers but the the mediation of the market as the set of institutions to effectuate that co-optation of resources and people Mm -hmm is no different ultimately right and that that's what this upcoming episode with clara Clara mate is about because that's exactly it there's this weird fetishization of literally like expanding one's borders 
and that's what counts, right? Oh, we didn't we didn't literally plant a flag. We're not in, in, involved in a more traditional colonial project. Therefore, we're the good guys. We're we're over here on the other side of the world where that's never really been as much of an option as as it is to other countries. Although we had our moments with Mexico, et cetera, obviously, but like. Because America has defined what it looks like to be an imperialist so narrowly, we get away with wielding our power across the world with our, our financial system and austerity and sit back and cross our arms and say, well, we didn't literally change some nation's borders. We don't have to print new maps, and therefore we're the good guys. Confessions of an economic hitman come to mind. And you know, if you, if you press really hard on that analysis, it falls apart because you know, at the end of the day, it's not just the case that we're sending – Chicago school economists to pillage and plunder economies and the resources of the global south, you know, behind the invisible hand of that market is the, you know, invisible fist of the CIA. And so when they talk about, you know, to your point, just because on September 11th, 1973, the CIA stages a coup to remove the democratically elected president of Chile and install a dictator who's going to, you know, over the ensuing decades, kill tens of thousands of dissidents. You know, it, it's it's no less imperial just because we didn't put a flag on it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's a formalism that elides the function of empire. And you know, ever since the westward expansion across this continent and the genocide of Native American peoples, you know, this has been, unfortunately, <clears throat> the project from the beginning. You know, I have one of my Substack posts from a few months ago was titled Fascism from the Beginning. Um, and... And I might reprise that now that thanks taken is coming up, but like, you know, the, the extent to which, and I, this is a, I'm using this term intentionally here, white supremacy, not as ideology, but as matter of sordid, corrupt fact has been implicit and pervades the American project, I think is generally under-recognized even now in 2022, you know, after all of the madness we've seen from, you know, mass shootings targeting LGBT safe spaces or spaces uh-huh. that, you know, mm-hmm. what the hope would be to, you know, synagogues, Sikh gurudwaras, like the hate crimes targeting everyone at this point. Even still, mm-hmm. I think people internalize it as hate targeting their communities instead of the rise of fascism marginalizing everyone. That's what mm-hmm. we are actually dealing uh-huh. with. And the inability to see beyond the part of the spear that's pointing at our faces to recognize that it's all being held in common, ultimately by capital and its, you know, assorted institutional faces. I feel like that's a big part of the the need that this historical moment calls for, you know, to look beyond our what's in front of our faces. Uh, y'all got me nodding like Condi now. This is this is, this is I'm, see, this, now. This is what John should be nodding his head to is what y'all are saying right now, not whatever BS they were. And then the thing that kept on, I just kept it was again, it it kept on just not whenever they said it, whenever they used the word bad actor, mm. it's like it's just a blanket term, and that's why I hate the discussion. Whenever like when people say things like, "Oh, this is a good person," "This is a bad person," or whatever, mm-hmm. it's just like a blanket to just don't ask any questions about it. We just get to decide who is a good actor, who is a bad actor, and then like I just saw something the other day about um, they was talking about in Afghanistan, and the I forgot the name of the like the village, but then I, there was a car bomb that happened, and these Marines just went ahead and just massacred this whole village mm-hmm. nothing happened to him mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. happened to him 
And it's just like, now, was anybody held responsible for that? Are we bad actors now for doing what we did? But then now, you know, then they whitewash it. But we did it for security reasons. What are that? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? You know, um, and it just that means a bunch of money for a bunch of companies. And it's sad because sometimes I feel like, you know, John be saying some stuff sometimes. Yeah, he's, you know, he's probably the best they got on the mainstream media, if, if not close to it. And still we have these kind of lapses because honestly, it's not even like. It's not, it that be boy was job. in a coma. That wasn't even a lab. That boy was in a coma. <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah. And he's smart. And he does all that stuff for the veterans. So it, you should know better than most people that when they talking about all this war, this, you know, um, uh, this, uh, you know, military industrial complex stuff, you should be, you know, you should know more so than anybody. Well, that's a lie. That's a lie. Weapons of mass destruction. Really? We already done. We already didn't found out. We didn't see the memo. We seen that was never that. Yeah, well, I mean, I would have as if it just never happened. They just rewrite history a little bit in that interview. You know, yeah, I mean, it's crazy <laughs> that he let her get the weapons of mass destruction line without <gasps> any kind yeah. of pushback. Yeah, I, and, I go back with him though, just to the fact that he is literally a comedian. So, like, I, I have a hard time with a straight face holding into any journalistic standing because, like, he'd be the first person to say, like, I shouldn't be the one okay. holding this microphone. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I'd have to have an earpiece in my ear. Like, if I were in that position, I would have to have the <laughs> Avengers assembled. I'd have to have my Voltron <laughs> machine assembled. Yeah. With, it would have been, like, Cyrano de Bergerac, and it would have been Chris Hedges and a whole slew of people in my earpiece, and I would have been responding slowly on a delay no see, all, all, all you would have needed was maury the lie detector test determined that was a lie that was a lie and then more maury would have just been good maury or ja i would have taken either one in that situation would have done the job great um i'll close with this because i want you know other folks to go ahead and get on um but then you know when y'all talk about you know what's next and organizing and everything um, and, you know, modes of, you know, where we should put and pour more investment. These schools, these public schools, let me tell you, is is a place where like they even just I saw in South Carolina, they just they uh, mothers for liberty. Right. That's what they call themselves. And I hate how the names are so it's so generic and it just the words don't even mean anything, but it sounds American. So like folks just <laughs> go. with it. So, you know, mothers for liberty put a whole bunch of money into this school board race. Um, they got a gang of them elected. The first day that they got sworn in, they ousted the black superintendent of the school who just had been rated proficient. And then they banned critical race theory <laughs> in, in, in the school. And the thing is, again, I mean, obviously, like, you know, we know critical race theory is not being taught in elementary schools and things like that but you know they use that as a blanket to you know to to wipe out stuff that you know that you know obviously the kids and stuff like that need to know reason why yeah, yeah you know reason why you know i'm bringing this up is because when we talk about all this misinformation that's going on all this manufactured consent that is going on in the media the one place where we can really start investing in the future and then also too once you know you invest in the kids you know, you can also, that's what the Panthers did. They fed mm-hmm. kids. 
they talk kids and then once you prove that you can deliver on something now if you bring something else to the parent they're more likely to take what you're saying because you didn't already show me what you could do with my kid which is what i love the most in the world you tell me i need to pay attention to this then i need to start paying attention to this um and um you know somebody that i feel like would be uh great to talk to um it may be like a fun switch up episode because a lot of times you know you're talking to adults things like that you talk to the youth you know um for the kids from uh, the students my bad not the kids the students from la students deserve who in 2020 we was talking earlier about what gains have been made since then defunded the school police by 25 million to invest specifically in black futures so culturally responsive culturally relevant curriculum social workers psychiatrists um i mean again like like and this is only with 28 percent of the budget that they defunded imagine if you took 100 percent of the budget the kinds of resources and programs that you could invest in for the kids and they got 25 million for this black student achievement plan and my org is working with a couple schools and what we're trying to do is to um, put more uh, abolition and liberation education to supplement that traditional education that they have so that they can connect the dots and be able to, you know, and then like also include the parents, you know, wraparound services so that like we can be able to mobilize and organize when we need to move on things. But you can't do that if people don't even know what they up against. And that comes on to the information part. So um, I can connect you with a brother that uh you know that really you know helps organize the students his name is joseph williams he's a part of blm as well well that could be kind of conflicted but joseph is a good brother he's a good brother and uh you know maybe if it makes sense have some of the youth come on and uh one of the youths come on and then talk about the organizing that they're doing helping trying to build community schools and how like that can be another vehicle another you know infrastructure for you know some change to happen on the you know very like local grassroots level it sounds like you know I love your recommendations. Work. I've taken the note in the Slack. You know I love your recommendations. Slide. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I um I muted myself because uh, my dinner arrived and I just didn't no you good oh yeah and they just they just beat a a school board member who was funded by billionaires like Bill Gates. She was trying to like uh do some, like a charter school. She's one of them charter school candidates. Take more money out of it and stuff. They just they just beat her. She had billionaire money in there. Um, I'll send that to you. Um, and then I'll hop off and let the next person go. But yeah, you know, the, the future is, is bright with the youth and that education, education, that's what we need to really invest in. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you slide. I look forward to getting that contact information for Joseph Williams from I hit you on LA Instagram. students deserve. I hit you on Instagram. All right. Perfect. Keep the, Thanks, work, Keep the faith. I love. All right. Jonathan, I'm pressing all the wrong buttons. What is on your mind? Hi. I, uh, so the Black Friday deals are already in place, and I decided it was time to replace the 10-year-old laptop. And I got the new one. I opened it up, hit the Start Menu button, and there's a big picture of Elon Musk's face staring back at me. Wait, really? And I, th- I had this sort of... <laughs> yeah, it's just sort of a it's like news a feed. dystopian Fault. nightmare. Music yeah, it, it's a dystopian moment. And then there was a simulacra staring me in the face. And I had this epiphany about, uh, it, I don't even need to read the headline anymore. It was a disgusting picture. And I knew the headline wanted me to feel disgusted with him. 
And oh, guess whose stock price has gone down like 20 points in two weeks or something like that. Mm -hmm. These things are okay. So the the point is, if you're the oligarch, you don't really care which party wins right now. But you do care. What you don't is nobody wins wins. You can't have anybody win with a mandate because then they'll use their public power to hamstring your private power. And you've never had a more easy way to, to manage this. And it's sort of related to what you guys were talking about, because it's about you know, people don't show up for people anymore. They show up against them. It's about managing disgust. Disgust is one of the Have you seen that movie Inside Out. I might have asked you that before. There's these emotions that are all in this little 11 year old oh, yeah, hockey player. The, girl's head. the Pixar movie. Right. Right. Yeah. Disgust. The, the fact that the whoever's theory of mind they were using included that one. She doesn't have very many lines, but I really like that she was included in there. That's who's driving my car. But that's she's there. And it, disgust, even compared to fear, it's it's immediate. It's visceral. It's pre language, which means it's like it's pre thought. And if you have people voting based on disgust, like who's the least disgusting is all we got now. You said earlier something like. Oh, in the macro and cheese interview with the people's imagination is being deliberately limited. And it, it's yeah, it's, it's about who they can make you vote against, not for. And. And I even noticed like the lately, the pictures of Donald Trump are all from a low angle and look up where all this bronzer is intact, you know, <laughs> and his suits brushed and everything mm -hmm. you want to make how you do how you do this is you divide and conquer. And, and Donald Trump has put a rift in the Republican Party. So you got them that are easily controllable. His presence is good for them because he is that he makes them weak by having them to be divided. And so like the Republicans, the next election is theirs to lose. But you can't have the Democrats win by too much, you know, so you have to weaken them, too. And you're going to manage. You have her step down. You know, I'm not saying that's necessarily all part of it. But it's just that this thing goes on where it's all about this. It's, disgust is easier to manage than those other emotions, even compared to fear. It's, it's it's not a complex psychological phenomenon like joy and sadness. Yeah, it's like an amygdala lizard. It's right to you. Yeah, and you post facto, you find ways to justify how you feel about the thing that you were made to be disgusted with. And that's all political discourse now. That's all the pundits do. That's all anybody does. And nobody, and they're like, oh, if we're all disgusted. You're making me think of like psychops in war. This always happens the dehumanization of the enemy as a thing. It's interesting to think about that. Yeah, but they're using it on their own country now. The American population is the victim of exactly that thing. I. Chickens coming home yeah, to root. And I do think that a lot of this, like, transphobic rhetoric and the focus on, you know, trans issues in kids and um, drag bars is part and parcel of that, too. I mean, it's like a there's there's going to be an ongoing debate, obviously, since the shooting over the weekend about who's responsible and who can be tagged with the, you know, the event itself. And, you know, it's going to go round and round in circles and all the conservatives are going to say it's unfair to, you know, blame anyone, you know, this, we've seen this happen a million times before, but it is, I mean, it, it is undeniable, the dehumanizing effect of characterizing everybody who ever, um, you know, put on gender bending clothes as a groomer has on people's willingness to take. Absolutely. I'm assert currently in St. Mary's Georgia right now at this very minute and that the all the advertisements for both uh, Herschel Walker and his opponent 
on both sides, the advertisements, there was one subject, abortion. Now, if you're if you're like the, the, the oligarch and you control the media, it the fact that the, all the commercials for the right are about abortion and all the commercials for the left are about abortion, and you know that the state as a whole is either one way or the other, then you're not, what you're just doing is trying to create the most disgust with both sides so that nobody wins because either one really winning is you losing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any theories about an antidote? You have to, I said earlier in the chat, uh, the, the similar echo doesn't tell you what to think, just what to think about. The, the, the subliminal message is always, this is important. I think I might have told the story before I was in the Burger King one day and there was Donald Trump's name in big letters on, the, this was years ago. And the little subtext might have said, is he a legitimate threat? But the operative word there is legitimate. Like, this is legitimate. Think about this. It's hardest for you because this is your job is to consume content all day. But the, for everybody else, the antidote is stop. Just stop it. Stop consuming content. You have to unplug. And in order to not be uh, what Nietzsche called slave morality, which you're against this, against that, you're not for anything. If you want to be for something, you have to craft it. Like we're all disappointed and disgusted with the, with the squad members, right? But I can't remember if somebody wants to link me them saying specifically what they are for and how to do it, not just buzzwords, but like, this is the bill I'm going to write. This is what's in it. Here are the numbers and here are the dates. Like, tell me what, I don't, I never heard that. I never heard that. Yeah, AOC does so these, um, disapp- AOC does these like what I've accomplished this year videos, like everything that we've done in two minutes. <laughs> You know those shit? Uh-huh. I know what you're talking and about. Like, yeah. And they're like, I mean, I mean, I think that the idea of advertising your wins is a good one. It's something that Democrats should do. But especially in this, like, historical moment, the wins seem so meager, inadequate. It's like, I remember it was, like, during COVID, and one of the wins was, like, you know, she was really on about the getting $7,000 in burial fees for people in her district who died of COVID, mm-hmm. which, like, I don't want to poo-poo that. I'm sure it really did matter for those families that are involved. Burial is stupid expensive. Obviously, the tragedy of losing a, lo- a loved one. You know, like, I'm not made of stone. But in the context, there seems something, like, almost immediately tone deaf about it in the context. And, like, all of those COVID-era problems – the follow-up question is always, and this isn't necessarily ASC's fault, but the follow-up question is always, why isn't this always a thing? If it's tragic to die of COVID and not be able to bury your loved one, why isn't it tragic to die of cancer or a right. gunshot wound and not be able right. to bury your loved one? Right. And this is where I got in trouble with that Kamala Harris tweet. If Kamala Harris says you shouldn't you know, have to forgo treatment because for, for COVID because you can't afford to pay, what about cancer? What about diabetes? What about all the other things that people get sick and die from? And, and so there is when it's coming from like a socialist, you know, self-described socialist and leftist who understands those systemic problems to not be drawing the connection between your policy and how far it needs to go and how it's a systemic concern and not just like something you should brag about getting like the, the little bit of federal aid to, to pay for these burials. It almost seems it starts to shift from a small but good thing I tried to do to a kind of papering over the bigger issue <laughs> yeah i mean the challenge right is structural to some extent yes, because and this is implicit in the legislative uh, function individually they don't they really can't do much they can write letters they can write they can ask questions 
they can write bills and they can vote on bills. Now I've seen, I've, there's a bill that Ilhan wrote a couple of years ago that I was just, you know, sort of like a, for me, an apex of sort of like socialist reasoning around like it was the rents and mortgage payments protection act that was going to force <clears throat> landlords and developers to pay the cost of housing throughout the pandemic. And, you know, as a, as a, these get dismissed in Washington as so-called marker bills, but to introduce bills that set the goalposts is a big part of the job. And I do feel that, you know, in a body of 435 people, you can't really assess an individual's performance by what the body does. Right. So it's like, it, it begs this question as to how you evaluate them. I think the reason people are really disappointed in many members of the squad ultimately is that some of the votes that they've cast have seemed, let's just say, at odds with some of their stated principles. You know, I'm thinking about like the Iron Dome, right? Or, um, or some of the other ones, the uh, Capitol Police. You know, there have mm-hmm. been there have been moments where they've um, seemed to take positions at odds with their own rhetoric. And I think that has ultimately been a big part of the disaffection of the grassroots left is, is witnessing, right? And, it, and this is why I was saying, I don't know if it's this conversation or other one, but like, you know, I when I look at members of Congress in the past who are worthy of emulation, Senator Russ Feingold comes to mind. Um, in the House, you know, I it's a, if there were more of us, we wouldn't have the same trajectory. But like Cynthia McKinney did about as much as a single person, you know, can in terms of like being a forceful voice. And she paid a political price for it, right? Um, but I think if you're not willing to do that, you kind of don't have any business running in the first place. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just a careerist, ultimately. And I th- do think that that's kind of true of everyone in politics, it seems to be. You know, there aren't a lot of people dedicated to principle in the process that I have found. Um, what, do you, what do you make of the conversation? I don't know if you were here for it, but we were having a little bit earlier about, you know, do, do we think that it's – what percentage of it is like – I'm principled and I'm not a careerist and I was never here for the pension. What percentage of it is there are very effective ways to suppress the, the, the machine is very strong and efficient. And even the people that we, cause I was, I was saying that I've always thought that Rashida Tlaib struck me as one of the most principled, not the most principled uh, squad member. And yet we haven't heard much from her of late. Um, and to what do we attribute that? Is it really that everybody is forced to bend the knee because they all have some, you know, financial investment in their futures? Or is there is is the coercion at a level that we don't understand? Um, and that, you know, frankly, nobody, no matter how strong their will, could overcome. I certainly can imagine some vectors of how that coercion emerges. Uh, you know, I haven't sat in their they shoes have- or their seats. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jonathan. Did you have something to say? They don't have any ideas. Like, I don't know. You say they can write bills, but I mean, know what you mean. They're allowed to write bills, but they don't write bills. Can they write bills? I don't think so. I don't. I think think that's true, by the way. Leftists complain a lot about about the Overton window. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the people who complain. If you, people think that if they complain about the Overton window, that they're somehow immune from it, but it's mostly 
it's like, do you know the difference? What let's say, let's just use healthcare as an example. To me, like communized healthcare would be like if it works like a school where everybody involved is a public employee. Socialized, really socialized medicine. It was with everybody involved, doctors, nurses, the guy who cuts the lawn, collectively own a hospital and worker ownership of the, and the land beneath it. Medicare for all is really just a liberal program. You know, hmm. it's sort of a fiscal That's spending bill. But like the difference between these things is when you're talking about the burials and the, the funeral costs and when you're talking about the housing program, it's all vouchers. That's just liberalism. It doesn't transfer ownership at all. And I don't think real estate is like, we're a socialist. Are you like they don't have it in their head what to write in the bill in the first place? Yeah. And it's that. like my hometown. I mean, one is of really the things I ran on of this, like Dubuque, Iowa has this problem. Iowa has this problem in Wisconsin where it's the hugest disparity. Sorry, what? I broken up a little bit. No, no, please go, go on. I want to hear what you were saying in terms of Iowa. How how do you see this playing out in terms of the the policy landscape there? Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry, just broke up a little bit. Oh, I just wanted Iowa to hear the rest you were talking a about. Huge disparity between the population of black people and the prison population. Okay. And it's because uh, I mean, if you would just look at it at the Occam's razor, you'd be like, Iowa cops are the most racist cops in the whole country. But if you look at this, these systems and you have about 1992, Chicago, Illinois has a way of solving its problems where it just gives its problem a one-way bus ticket to somewhere else. And there was a really willing recipients in the slumlords of a place like my hometown of Dubuque, Iowa. And you have these housing vouchers that are basically, they go straight to the landlord and pay the landlord the difference between what their house is Section actually eight. worth and what they think they deserve. Yes, Section 8. And so it's all about the guys in the city council and the chamber of commerce, which in every municipality are the same people using poor people as a trampoline. All vouchers are this. I already had like a conversation about why universal basic services are better than universal basic income because UBI, an increase in wages, even reparations will all bounce into the rentier, the monopolist, the landlord, the banker. But but so then you have gentrification. That's what liberalism is gentrification. Neoliberalism is gentrification. And these were like, this, this is socialist. We're going to do these socialist things. And AOC is meanwhile just talking about neoliberalism. Like the Overton window is seeing that if ownership was not transferred, you're not in the realm of leftism. You're, you're not. And so if you're uh, thinking of, well, we need to do these socialist things. It's not enough of a socialist victory. It's so minor. It's not even that. It's it's nothing. It's less than nothing because it seems like it's something and it's working against you. Yeah, no, I, I again, I hate to keep referencing this interview that you guys haven't seen. It hasn't come out yet, but I think that it gets to a lot of this um, and which is why it's important. I mean, there's an argument, you know, that many people on the left have been making that Bernie would have actually hurt in the long run, because it, it, you know, would have been an off ramp to social democracy when the goal should be something far beyond it, because it's fundamentally, it was a fundamentally yeah, liberal, liberal kind of intervention, one that's a vast improvement over the mean, but still uh, nowhere near where we uh, could or should be going. But I appreciate you calling in, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks. Can I throw one, one, one just yeah, go ahead. thought there on this principle, just the, you know, one of the one of the defining platform planks for me when I was running was nationalizing the fossil fuel industry. 
which gets totally to your point about collective ownership, right? And it, and it also gets at not just collective ownership of enterprises, but how we construct the market. The market is a creation of the legal regime and whatever, you know, it's not some abstract, like this thing that was like, you know, the way like libertarians try to imagine it's like some, you know, God-given thing that we were just like, you know, found ourselves. Right. The theory like folds the, back on itself a little bit there. It's just because like, like you could imagine the Medicare for all, which I said was liberalism as a kind of communizing health insurance, not health care, but health insurance. That's right. So it's like what, what should be communized it, like the it, oil is as simple as asking, like, what do you need to live and work in the United States? Another way to phrase it is like what's currently an inelastic uh, commodity with a non-discretionary commodity with inelastic resource that's being monopolized. But those are two different ways of saying the thing, same thing. Mm -hmm. If it's worth monopolizing, mm -hmm. it's be, it's because people can't live without it. And so what does that include oil? You know, your, your cell phone? Yes, it does. Does it include uh, bicycles, uh, rifles and car stereos? No, it doesn't. So don't communize those. I don't want government manufactured sandwiches. You don't need that. But you do need like government provided health insurance and cell phone services, not necessarily the phone, but the <clears> service. <throat> I've, talked about that difference before but yeah is it monopolized what, what, well then compete with it by providing it as a service not money because that will just bounce into the monopolist hands right i like your distinction between services and money and i have one attempt at an elegant summation of that principle you're articulating is is creating basic rights to basic needs and like that's that's not yeah, full-on yeah, like socialism that. or communism it's the sense of like transferring public ownership but it's a rights-based approach at chipping away at capital that is more than merely marginal. You know, like it's structural in the same way we were saying before, like you're calling out corruption as a back end way of putting capitalism on trial. Similarly, <clears throat> like an expansive vision of human rights can be very radically redistributive without ever having to invoke any isms mm. and, and all the dissonance that comes with it. Mm. Well, so thank you for calling in again, Jonathan. I'm yep. going to try to get through some more of this queue because I want to finish up uh, by at 11 today, no later than 11. Um, but thanks as always. And I do want to play – This is I'm, I'm playing this in the Claremont interview, but I've, I've referenced it so many times. I do think it would be useful for us to just listen to this, like, two-minute clip because what you're saying about the isms, look what, look what happens when you get caught up in the isms. This is from the um, Trevor Noah, Barack Obama uh, interview. Okay. If we're not there, if we're not helping build that road, if, if we're not there to uh, China. You know, build that port, then naturally uh, people are going to start thinking, well, maybe that's a, that's a recipe for bettering my life mm -hmm. as opposed to you know, some flowery language but has nothing behind it. Right, right. I wonder, though, do you think inclusive capitalism is, is, is somewhat of a paradox. You know, it, it feels you like think it's possible. It feels you, you think it's because it feels it feels like, I mean, capitalism is designed to extract as much wealth as possible from every single interaction yeah, that it can. Th 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 look, uh, you know, I mentioned you know, Sweden and, and some of the problems they're having because of immigration. On the other hand, you look at Scandinavian countries, they're capitalist countries, would, would, but, but some and, and, argue, and those work very well. But some people would argue that their foundation is more, you know, socialist. And then they go with it's, it's almost like they go mm. with. with Socialist first, and then capitalism is our undercurrent. Not really. You, you, don't, know, you, you don't agree with that? Well, I mean, if you go there, essentially, they, people are taxed more, 
and they have more common goods. Right. But you're still going around at a job and you get paid and, uh -huh. you know, you, you can't, it's not like you're going into the store just grabbing whatever you want, <laughs> walking but, out. But the question... Oh, I see a <laughs> fish, man, you know. No, but the reason no you got to pay for it, right? Yes. right? Then the guy at the, the cash register is right. checking, Am I, did I make a profit here today? Right, right, but the reason I'm asking that is because I, and maybe it's the words that fail us sometimes. Yeah. I, I often, you know, I'll talk to my friends about this. I go, it's interesting that we sort of stopped. Right. We went, oh, there's socialism, there's, you know, there's this, there's the communism, yeah. there's capital. And then we just stopped. We're like, this yeah. is it, there's capitalism, and that's that. I sometimes wonder, is there not something better? Is there well, not something think, we could be moving towards? I think towards? there is. The, 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 what, the, maybe the, I should be asking, the, what the, is the, inclusive the, capitalism? The reason I, I just used, uh, a, let's say, a, a Denmark as an example, mm -hmm. is not because it's going to work perfectly in India, the United States, et cetera. The point, though, is, is they, they've got some blend, some mix. Right. Right. There is an advantage in terms of efficiency and also freedom to a market system. Okay. Right? You have a control system. You know, some guy in an office is deciding how many potatoes we're going to grow this year. That usually doesn't work. Right. The flip side of it is that what we've also learned is that if some guy in a boardroom is deciding I'm going to ravage the environment to you know, do whatever I want, that doesn't work either. Right. In an ideal world at that point, Terranoa says, well, what if it's neither a person in a boardroom nor some authoritarian government figure that is setting the terms? What if there is worker ownership, people control, actual economic de democracy? I won't spoil it for you. I will spoil it for you. Terranoa doesn't say that. <laughs> but I got to give I got to give these Daily Show hosts a little bit of credit tonight because they're. They're perhaps inadequately prepared, but I appreciated that Trevor Noah at least pushed back a little bit and raised the possibility to President Barack Obama that mm -hmm. capitalism wasn't the best humanity could do. What, what did you think of that, uh, Gary? Uh, sorry, I forgot you were down there. Uh, I don't want to force you to talk about this if you had another question on your mind, but I invite you to respond if you'd like. Oh, yeah. Um, well, before I do my uh, my Kim Iverson impression, um, I mean, it's it, like I said, it's always hard to – talk about the principles of uh, of leftists or people who are proposing a leftist solution to to a lot of the problems that we have because i'm i'm not exactly sure what what level of fidelity they have to to workers um in general um because at the end of the day um like at the end of the day like how do you treat workers i mean that 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 is beyond uh, beyond theory beyond you know ideals on a practical level how do you treat workers and i think when we look at how workers have been treated in this country recently by specifically by people who propose to be pro-worker um i'm not exactly sure what, what if the principles are are, necess are that are, are necessary to actually push a movement toward leftism is actually actually even exists in a lot of these people so but you know, I'm not exactly sure what's in Trevor Noah's heart. I'm not exactly sure what his leftist ideal actually is. Um, if he wants to be a, a Scandinavian country, I feel like that's, you know, I don't feel like that's necessarily going to solve a lot of the problems that, that a lot of the problems that we have. And I don't, I don't think it makes government look more attractive when you're talking about, when you're talking about the reality of what has been going on in this country for the last couple of years. Bigger government doesn't look more attractive to workers uh, today than it did two years ago. Bigger government looks 
more oppressive, um, more overreaching, and yeah, but I th- more dehumanizing. I think the point that people are making is that it's not bigger government abstractly; it's worker ownership of corporations, of economic systems, on a, you know local local governance, things like that. Like that—that's the point. That the 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 version that Barack Obama is selling and the version of uh, socialism or communism that has been sold to the American public is necessarily authoritarian. It erases the authoritarian aspects of our own current system. It pretends like the um, negative externalities of capitalism can be cured through some kind of inclusive capitalism, and that it's not—it's a—it's a bug rather than a feature of capitalism. And on the converse, it treats every negative effect of these fledgling experiences, uh, ex, um, experiments at communism as necessary to communism or socialism in a way that doesn't necessarily do them justice, which is what Trevor Noah was kind of exploring there a little bit. Let me, let me bring you into this for a second, Shahid. What did you make of that? Certainly a very um, stilted vision of what the paradigm alternatives are in the same way that I thought John Stewart did is a better job than I would have expected. And at least some people in his position to do it also thought, uh, you know, Trevor Noah pushed back in ways that I would always want to see somebody do it better. But like, I was glad he did something uh, in terms of offering that um, critical, skeptical voice that, again, I just struck by how we're looking to comedians to play the role that we <laughs> used to expect journalists to play, right? It's bizarre that it right. falls to them. Um, but yeah, this idea that like, if you go to a job, that's capitalism. And, you know, socialism is just walk out of the store with whatever you want and say bye on your way out. It's just like, what are you even talking about? Like, what, what is he talking about? You know, it seems to me that he's messaging to small business owners and the class mm-hmm. of Americans that are mm-hmm. sort of, you know, not ideological. They're casually observe politics. They're committed to a way of the white moderate, basically, the king describes in his letter. I sort of feel like that's who Obama's talking to. Um and I do think that that character is unfortunately swayed by that level of sort of, you know, it feels like a matador with a red cape in front of a bull, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. they're just going to walk out of your store and not pay for anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. You know, haven't you seen Yeah, that's video? such a... You know, it's just like... Yeah. Right? L- I mean, L- the he tension said, really he is... said looting and polluting is not the way. <laughs> Yeah, Obama said property rights. Okay, but I didn't just steamroll you, Gary. What what did you call in to talk about? Oh, okay. Um, well, first, uh, just a kind of a reference to your question regarding Rashida Tlaib and and, and her silence. Um, the thing about making politicians like her and and in particular politicians who are more ideologically grounded, it's the popularity comes from what principles they hold, and it's no secret that a lot of the squad. Um, kind of came in on a free Palestine. That was one of their core principles. And that's, you know, once they got into to government, you know, you hear a lot of that rhetoric sort of disappear and you realize that from a, a political standpoint, you know, that that allegiance kind of is a, is a political loser for them. And so when you don't have one of your, your, when you have to kind of give away a lot of your key principles, you know, what does that do to you on a spiritual level? You know, when literally you go in and you're like, oh, I'm going to be not just pro, you know, 
pro-Palestine. I am a Palestinian and that's going to be, you know, a hill to die on. And then you get there and that get, kind of gets beaten out of you from a political standpoint. You know, what does that do to you as an actor? Are you just, do you just kind of become a zombie who's just going through the motions because you know you're not allowed to actually be a, pr a principled actor? And I think a lot of that, that happens to a lot of the, the people that, that enter not just the Democratic Party, but you know, it's good to see Matt Gates kind of stand up, on, stand on principle because, you know, he's somebody who hasn't been squashed by the machine um, just yet. And um, that's heartening. But ultimately, I do feel like these younger politicians, they have a tough hill to climb when they want to actually stand up on principle and introduce ideas that, you know, like getting money out of politics, which, used to, which was literally, you know, Young Turks like founding principle. And now it's kind of like, now it's more culture war, you know, Republicans, bad stuff. Um, I just think a lot, of, a, a lot of these ideals and principles kind of get beaten down by, by the machine and exactly how things work. And you realize, you know what, beating Trump and, and getting money from whatever dark entities we need to is more important than our, our ideals. And I just feel like that's kind of like, you know, just I was thinking about that Rashida Tlaib question and where she's been. And I just feel like she's probably succumbed to the fact that principles don't matter here and um you should kind of leave those at the door which is why this electoralism and this question about whether or not this is the way forward um always you know leads you to a, a more depressing place because you realize if they're devoid of principle what exactly do can we expect to get from them you know like what exactly are you looking for from from the progressives when it comes to a, a quote-unquote movement like what is it grounded in if they they are devoid of principle it just like, what on you, there. What I, I almost feel like what we're fighting for is whatever we can push them to <clears throat> I'm, I'm reminded of and it's not the same because it's executive versus legislative and there's a lot of places where the parallel breaks down but when fdr says to a. philip randolph you know i agree with you now make me do it i i sort of think of the anyone in a legislative function ultimately is like a target for social pressure and theoretically the members of the squad if we take them at their word have announced that they're going to be receptive to that pressure in a way that their predecessors were not but the idea that they can that we can expect them as a movement to be champions it does turn on a great many things, you know, and I think your point about like the spiritual weight of concession is, is interesting. I haven't thought of it particularly through that uh, lens, but just the idea that they, um, for instance, <clears throat> even if their bills that they're writing are neoliberal to the point, I think it was Jonathan who was calling in before, you know, the fact that their visions that they're articulating have effectively no hope in the current or near term to pass. And they are ultimately there fighting a losing battle. I mean, when I when I when I lost my race, I you know it's one of the most like relieving things that ever happened to me. It's like okay, thank God that's <laughs> over, you know. And it's like um, the idea of of being Sisyphus, surrounded by an entire city of sycophants, is just like nightmarish, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I mean that's that's what my twenty years in DC were like, right? You know. So I kind of get it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also understand that, you know, if you're in their position where you're, um, I'm just bringing this back to the movement. Ultimately, we can't rely on anyone to do the work. We put them in place so that we can pressure them. And, and I think what, what we have them there is for whatever we can 
whatever we can push them to do and whatever we can make it untenable for them not to do. Right. I mean, I, I think the idea that we can abandon agitation towards our allies because they are our allies mistakes the point, because whether it's agitation pushing an unhelpful actor or agitation providing cover for an institutional ally, either way, we have to push. And I've seen I, I think this is actually one of the things that happened to Obama when he came into office. As soon as he got to Washington, everybody that sent him there went back to brunch. And to whatever extent there was any opportunity for a progressive push within the administration, there was just no energy for it across the body politic. Uh, you know, not until really until after the recession and then, you know, like Occupy kicks in, you know, but when he first came into office, it was like, it was so complacent, mm-hmm. the, the grassroots support, you know, and that, that's, you know, one of the reasons why um, I think it was organizing then became Obama for America and our revolution with Bernie, you know, there's been, attempts in recent cycles to build institutional arms to then continue the mobilization work. And, you know, I don't think that's really, frankly, caught on in a meaningful way in either of those cases, at least in the way we might have hoped. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, the most cynical version is that they've literally taught us to demobilize. They've literally taught us to um, put you know, charismatic figureheads like Obama on a pedestal over invest in identity politics and to demobilize the, the propaganda about um, Occupy really gets on my nerves. Um, This accusation of it being messageless and demandless Mm -hmm. and therefore morally bereft and beneath you know, serious people's political notice seems to me to be an obvious op. (laughs) It's an obvious propaganda campaign. Um, It, that it's not on one level. It's not true. There were a plurality of demands. You can say that there, there were too diffuse. You could say that, you know, they could have been, you know, messaged better, but I got to say 99% versus the 1% was a pretty clear message Mm -hmm. that has stayed with us since then. And, the, in the context of the recession, it was really clear who the enemy was. And that was the point. Their location on Wall Street s- screamed who the enemy was. There was no, you know, there was, there was nothing, excuse me, oblique about that. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like there was a lot, like the media has been working overtime to convince people that protests are dumb, um, that they don't work, that you got to just trust um, the nice guy in office with his ice cream cones or his dogs major and colonel and all the other weird generals that, uh, <laughs> that Biden's dogs are named stupid fascist dogs. It's so weird. It's not the dog's fault. It's not the dog's fault. Except for that one who bit all those people. I don't know what's going on with that dog. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like it, it seems like obvious, Some dog right? Society is going to come after you. Tomorrow, <laughs> I'm just no, right I'm now. sorry. There's no bad dogs, only bad owners. Joe Biden. Well no. <laughs> but you know, I, and then I, and then the, the 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 George Floyd happened, and it's like they obviously want there to be no message. They they want mm-hmm. like look what happened to Black Lives Matter. I mean, like even before we knew about all of the ceiling and the how hype houses and all of that nonsense. Like I remember sitting there in 2020, like feeling you know 
disgruntled because of Bernie, feeling like everything time I tweeted something, sold out O'Brien had to open her mouth and like attack me. Like all I felt like under a lot of pressure and I was so new to all of this that I felt like I want, didn't want to like speak out of turn. I didn't want to be accused of trying to co-opt a movement. It's I didn't want to be accused of being a deray. As someone who is so very outspoken, it's fascinating to hear you say this. Well, I, 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 I stayed in my lane. I knew about what was going on with Bernie and Biden and kind of the election. But when it came to movement politics, I'm like, I'm not trying to pretend that I know anything okay. about this. Okay. This isn't my area, no. you know. So I, I was waiting. I remember sitting there waiting patiently all summer for something to emerge and for someone to connect the, 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 the political energy in the street to demands from Joe Biden in the election. And it wasn't happening. And eventually, halfway through the summer, I wrote my litmus test article in Current Affairs. And that was my timid articulation of the idea that maybe a little bit we should consider asking for something, given you have all of these voters in the streets mad about some real stuff. And then you saw what happened with Ice Cube. When he like raised his hand just a little bit and said, "Oh, there should be like some specific asks from Black Americans, like the contract for Black America, like just maybe think about it." And then the Black media establishment turned on him like he was Donald Trump himself. And so this is this is where we are. They they don't want you to have a concentrated message. They don't want you to have a charismatic leader. They 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 roll out incentives for the people in charge of these movements to get rich. You know, sitting in a Shell oil ad or or selling Cravassier. I truly <laughs> saw one of them in a in a brown liquor ad. Are you serious? Yes, a hundred percent. And so, like this is this is like what they're doing. I mean, and I think your point um, about demobilization, I think, is is so key. And even what you just kind of touched on the fact that it goes beyond that to a level that's almost like this nefarious judo, where they they kind of turn. The quote, the quote unquote pushing and the pressure that's supposed to be a- applied by the working class back on itself, where they start to kind of mm. create fissures and create a divide and conquer. And uh, I can think that kind of opens me up to sort of, you know, stop self-censoring and, and sort of getting into the, the, the problem with the movement when, when, when we, with the movement creation, when we realize that when the working class starts to eat itself, there needs to be a rebuilding before you can move forward. And like the movement is kind of hit a spot where uh, the working class sort of went through a, a long period of visceral division. Talk about the working, though the workers movement and the labor movement, a part of the labor movement is labor law and firefighters in New York taking the city to court because they were fired over policies that leftists supported. So when you're talking about the labor movement and people who are pushing for a working class movement, like I said, sometimes those pe- the labor movement is actually being opposed by people who are rhetorically for the labor movement. Mm-hmm. And those and the actual workers who the people the people who are speaking about the labor movement are actually you know speaking about they have to go to court to fight against the liberals. If somebody and, was making this argument that part of what's going on with all the school board fights and the you know attacks on trans kids and you know a CRT and all of that is crystallizing a distrust of teachers unions to be kind of the tip of the spear of an attack on unions more broadly. 
Oh, the tackle the teachers union has been has been sort of like the the under Obama the um, education reform movement was definitely a, a kind of an attack on unions mm-hmm. in general. It was that that was kind of open. I mean, the race to the top bribe, bribe and public goods policy. unions and public goods at the same time, yeah. right? Education, yeah, indeed, a public trust. Right. So there was a, right. yeah, obviously Diane Ravitch's um, book, Death and Life of the Great American School System, kind of lays out you know the chapter on the Billionaire Boys Club and and the different forces that are sort of controlling these movements. And you see, it's like there's like a concerted effort to not just like I said, it, it has to be clever. Like you can't just come from on high. You have to get the workers to turn against each other mm. so that they eat each other. You know, over the last two years, it's like you have workers like I hate that segment of workers and you guys don't get to eat in the same restaurant as me. That that in and of itself kills the workers movement because two people who should be sitting next to each other becoming friends now have one is outside and the other one's inside and they hate each other. Yeah. You know? Well, look, Gary, I, I think that's an accurate diagnosis. I'm going to get through some more people in the line because I want to wrap in 15 minutes or so, but I appreciate you calling in. Can, right. I, can I do a quick 30 seconds on Gary's? Yeah, please. One of the points that Gary's making. So yeah, I can't speak particularly to this dynamic of like um, labor rank and file being split, but every labor union that lines up behind corporate Democrats is led by straight up sellouts. Straight mm. up sellouts, people who are mm. putting their careers before the movement, straight up. And I saw every labor union in San Francisco line up behind an insider trading oligarch who is mm. blocking Medicare for all, who's blocking a $15 minimum wage, who's blocking the Green New Deal, all policies the labor claims to support. But, you know, put the like, let the rubber hit the road in the context of any race. And what labor will do is always the institutionally safe thing line up behind the incumbent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been saying for years, I think the, the front of struggle that is most crucial is shaking loose leadership within unions so that it's not the ossified class that is beholden to the corporate bosses that is calling the shots, but rather the young, well, not necessarily young, but the militant organizers who've been organizing these workplaces. Those are the people who need to be making calling shots with respect. And, you know, to say it, political endorsements kind of waters it down, I mean, that's the part of the process I saw the candidate, but like there's lots of ways labor can show up or not. And, you know, this was a thing actually when, when Occupy was happening, there was a whole question and I, I wasn't in New York as much as in many of the other sites, but like the places where labor showed up, I think it was St. Louis. I remember, uh, it was either St. Louis or Chicago. I think it was St. Louis cause it was raining on the first day. Mm-hmm. And like, there was a labor union that showed up with a porta potty. Mm. And like that was huge. It like changes the context for everything because you're not like you know begging to use the bathroom at some shitty cafe or on the corner, you know. It's just like infrastructure mm-hmm. and like the recognition of common cause with this ragtag group of activists and that Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who came on his day off, you know, because he was interested in anti-capitalism. I remember that conversation. It's like a bizarre day. It just rings out in my memory and you know, to see labor show up in that site and conspicuously not in others, mm. you know, it's, it's like this recognition, ultimately it's a solidarity, but like a meaningful commitment to it beyond just words and a damn chant. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, all these labor unions who line up behind democratic politicians, they'll, they'll sing about solidarity, but their actions don't seem to reflect so much of it. 
And, yeah. and I wish that that were isolated, but I'm literally talking about the entire class of labor leaders in this country. Yeah. Yeah. I, pre- I appreciate that. Shahid, it's, it's, it is glaring when you put a fine point on it like that. And Andrew, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight. Hi. Um, so after viewing your episode interview with Ryan Grimm, it made me reflect on how many people I've heard say that they feel politically lost or homeless lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made me also think of Chris Hedges, how he likes to talk about Sheldon Woolen and the idea of the political interregnum and how there's just this state of kind of being lost politically. I was kind of hoping uh, you could potentially talk to Chris Hedges again at some point soon uh, about this kind of a topic. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, for sure. I mean, you know, the thing is with Chris Hedges, God bless him, is that he doesn't exactly perk up the mood. (laughs) (laughs) he doesn't exactly i mean he's not exactly he's going to affirm the feeling and validate it which you know is validating (laughs) but uh you know we we tend to when our episodes we tend to get into this little bit of a back and forth because i'll be a little bit trying to be like solution oriented um and maybe that's not fair i'm not going to say obviously obviously he is also solution oriented but i i guess my i'm still I'm sorry. Is he the nihilist in your conversations? I, I wouldn't go that far. I just I think that maybe I'm still hopeful about a shorter term horizon of turning things around than he is maybe. And that puts us in a different kind of posture in terms of the urgency versus how long I'm willing to sit in the kind of like this sucks place of the conversation. So I don't know. I think that, you know, his analysis is extraordinary. And I personally feel a lot, I felt, you know, I feel a lot of validation from knowing that I'm not like prematurely pessimistic because he has been around longer and seen so much more and understand so much more and is kind of agreeing with the assessment of the state of play. However, um, maybe he is, I mean, it's fully possible that he is correct in being more, feeling like he's more in a more of a jaded, um, cynical place. But it's sometimes that leads – I'm just saying that you're going to get more of that. <laughs> you're gonna get more of that. If, if you're hoping that the episode is, like, taking you in a different direction, that has not been my experience so far, even though I love every single episode for other reasons with Chris Hedges. I've read Hedges long enough to know what to expect, trust me. <laughs> but the, the thing I was hoping for would be more of a discussion maybe around protests specifically and direct action and the topic of how uh, it shouldn't be used for catharsis. Mm-hmm. Someone else you might want to talk to, I would love to hear on this, is Norman Finkelstein. I think mm-hmm. he has a lot to offer on his studies about Gandhi and mm-hmm. direct action. And, um, you know, that's somewhat solution-oriented because when when I hear about asking these politicians more questions and strategies, the only time I want to ask them a question is when it reveals their hypocrisy. And mm-hmm. there's fewer and fewer people that are willing to do that, or not even willing, but able because they have so little access, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that that's really what I would like to hear personally, but I understand why you have some reservations. No, no, no. I'd love to have Chris just back on. I'm. I made a note. I also, I just was talking to Norm last week because I was trying to convince him to come on and talk about um, the nation of uh, the, sorry, the Hebrew Israelites and all the Kyrie Irving stuff with me. 
Uh, I'm still working on trying to put a panel together on that. But, like, I know that he would be happy to come back. And I always love talking to Norm and Chris both. And whoever, by the way, earlier was saying, um, do they even have a plan? Do the squad members have a plan? Remember I told you guys that one of them called me once and, like, post-forced the vote, and I was explaining why we felt some kind of way about it. And he basically confessed that – they basically confessed that um, they felt like – uh, you know, all they heard was that there were attacks on AOC and it wasn't fair. And so they like felt solidaristically like they didn't want to get involved with the crew who were like attacking AOC. And then they proceeded to basically ask me what I thought was next for the left. Like, what's my plan? Like, they're like crowdsourcing ideas from like the likes of me. And so like, I, I, I don't mean that in like such a like insulting way, but what I've heard from them and they're like staffers that I've spoken to is they feel understaffed. They feel like they don't have the the same resources that centrists do to have like the I forget what it is, but the in house like the the people who write the, the bills. The yeah, they won't have the like the committee staff aren't going to answer to the junior members. Like they're only right. going to have the personal staff. Right. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and this, so they feel like is... they have to reinvent the wheel on everything. Yeah, they're right, and uh, they're right because they're not in the positions of power, and they won't be if the you know people that support the squad have learned anything by now it should be that they're not going to get in positions of power and uh the the idea is i would think that you you know before revolution which is like people like to talk like that (laughs) i got tricked in 2015 by a certain old man that liked to talk about revolution Mm -hmm. but when you take it seriously obviously you don't want to go there as your first step but maybe black figuring out ways to blackmail the people that are in power because it's going to be a you know, someone that you oppose, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or someone else, it's not going to be someone that even pretends to appeal to these kinds of populists. And that goes for Matt Gates as well. And, uh, you know, I'm just uh, very looking forward to hearing ideas and conversations about how to leverage the people in power, regardless of whether they agree with us or not mm-hmm. um, from the outside. So I know that uh, you have a lot of other people I want to talk to. I appreciate your time a lot. And uh, I don't want to keep asking you the same question. So I appreciate it. Thank you for calling in. I I, I appreciate uh, all your thoughtful comments, Andrew. All right, BK, say your truth. What's on your mind? Hi. Uh, I'll try to be super quick. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, Loud and clear. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been thinking because uh, Jonathan's made this point the last couple episodes about um, uh, how they're I, I did a Google search and there's actually more white people in prison. And I, I know he meant proportional, like by percentage mm-hmm. and there's more white people killed by cops. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it might be a good strategy to like center the white victims, <laughs> like to build credibility with like working class white people, like for our movement. Um, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there, BK. I have also had this thought. Um, Zed Jelani had this fun little troll uh, years ago when I was at The Intercept. He wrote this piece up about um, how the biggest indicator of whether or not you're going to get killed by a cop is the uh, socioeconomics of your neighborhood. And it was a little mm-hmm. bit of an overstatement, right? Because the socioeconomic tranches that were involved in the study were huge. So it was basically like if you are in a neighborhood where the average income is $200,000 a year or higher, you are basically – you will never get killed. You will never get killed by a cop. And 100% of deaths at the hands of the police were in neighborhoods under $200,000 a year average income. So, I mean, 
look, I think there are games to trade, to, if I'm going to be really honest, about having a accurate and inclusive portrait of who is victimized by the cops. I think there are a lot of freedom-loving Americans who hate the idea of being under the surveillance state. Look at this like kind of natural antagonism to the FBI that's arisen around the Trump investigations. And mm-hmm. though a lot of those people could be on our side. Moreover, yep. uh, from a basic humanitarian level, it is there's something like off about the extent to which white people killed by the cops are kind of excluded from the narrative. Yeah. That just doesn't sit right with me from a moral <laughs> perspective. Yeah, there's been some wild videos that didn't go viral. Like just, Do you know, the one that did go viral with that guy, it's, it haunts me to this day from years ago where there was a guy in a floor. hotel. Sorry? Yes. Yes. And, and like yeah, a hallway. He's on the floor. Yeah. Yes. And they give him all these mixed instructions. He's like on his knees with his hands behind his back. And they're like, come this way. And he's like, well, I have to crawl to do that. And he goes to put his hands down. And they just fucking blow this guy away at close range. Yeah. It is, he's on his knees like like completely vulnerable it's disgusting and, and he so, knew it was like, coming yes like yeah, he, he was somehow he's terrified yeah yeah it yeah it's too, so i remember yeah. It. yeah yeah um so yeah I, I i know that maybe you didn't expect me to be so ready to agree with this but i'm on board what do you think Shahid? <laughs> i i i was more interested in responding to andrew's point from before about like pressuring folks in the squad if i can digress to that Sh- jump sure. back a minute so sure. like um there was a reference to uh, feeling the need to extort people. And I would just say, if you remove, like replace extortion with lobbying, mm-hmm. like that's kind of what the other side does mm-hmm. relentlessly is show up and be like, you're either going to vote this way or else. And what the else is, we're going to bring this constituency and this constituency and this many people in your district. And we're going to camp out on your, we're going to make your life a living hell and we're going to replace you. And like, that's basically what we need to start doing is showing up in members offices with that kind of posture and these you know it, a lot of people look to the squad at the end of the day they don't represent vast swaths of the country so like rather than you know sweat someone who's ideologically aligned with you but doesn't geographically represent you if you show up in the office of whoever represents you in congress with three or four you know maybe five or six neighbors and you've signed your names to a document with your contact information on it and you make very clear that you're going to be a stick in the mud, that'll at least get you meetings. And, you know, there, there are people at the margins who, if you put the fear of God into them, might actually waffle and shift. And you can see this a lot, actually, particularly I'm thinking about um, attitudes towards um, policing have they've, they've gone back and forth. You saw this both in 2020, when we saw new solicitude by people, for instance, wearing Kente cloth, you know, mm-hmm. mounting support for principles they'd never supported before. Mm-hmm. And then the pendulum swinging all the way back now, where we're seeing progressive prosecutors voting out, you know, and the demagoguery here in San Francisco targeting Chesa, who was the old DA here, you know, sort of a, mm-hmm. an example of this. But the, the susceptibility of Democratic office holders to grassroots pressure at least as it is articulated and constructed by the press, because, you know, in 2020, there was press coverage of protests. And in the years since, there's been press coverage of a supposed crime wave, mm-hmm. which I think is entirely concocted and, you know, contrived in itself. But just this point that a lot of legislators, the ones who are uh, there for their careers can be pressed. And if you think of the extortion, if you just, if you just, you know, 
extortion is a crime, obviously lobbying is entirely encouraged. And just think about it as your like First Amendment right to show up. And, you know, you don't have to threaten them, but like show up and, and bring to bear what you can press them. You know, what, what communities you have um, connections to get whatever your community is. If you, this is how we were challenging racial profiling policies at the local city council level in the mid 2010s, just organizing like faith leaders, the labor leaders we could get, usually the people who were first at the table were sort of like um, organizers in demographic affinity silos. But you just get, you know, a handful of them together, agree on some set of principles. And then, you know, it's literally like count up how many people you have in the district and put that in a letter and be like, okay, if you're not with us, we're going to, you know, we're going to put out a hostile message about you to this many people. That is political, not extortion, it's just lobbying. But like, that's your right. And I, and I do see the version of lobbying that the left does is so much more conciliatory than that. It tends to be like, oh, well, you know, we're this community group. We'd really like you to do this. And it's like, you know, show up like, like you're cracking a whip. I mean, these are people who work for you, who, again, have been fleecing the public for decades. And I really don't think that, you know, grassroots communities need to relate to legislators as if they're celebrities. Mm-hmm. Like they're supposed to be your representatives. Put them to work. And 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 the ones who are unhelpful, put them on notice, and then push them the hell out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that would require an adversarial relationship uh, with con- Congress members, which is something that unfortunately liberals are like anathema to. But we're working on it. <laughs> we're working on it, and it's with people like your help, uh, Shahid, who have so much institutional knowledge and who are willing to fight the good fight and put your money where your mouth is. And I'm just so grateful for you. I completely respect this feeling of relief of not actually having to serve in Congress. But I think some of us, even the most jaded of us, would have liked to have seen it. So thank you for your efforts. Thank you for uh, joining us here today on this call. Always an honor to be with you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. And look, guys, I'm contemplating how to handle Thursday with the holiday of it all. I think what I'm going to end up doing is just releasing an episode on Thursday and saving the Claremonte episode for Monday, which begs the question what we're going to do about Colin on Thursday and whether we should have one at all. Maybe what we should do is see how we feel post-stuffing and maybe convene for a Thanksgiving, maybe just a brief tete-a-tete on Friday if you need a little escape from the um, family situation or just generally want to talk about whatever else has been going on this week. And then we will see you for a regularly scheduled Monday. Let me know how that sounds. If that feels copacetic. Um, And I'm now going to play you what would have been the outro song for today's episode. If I had gotten my edits back to the producer in time, the episode title was follow the leader, obviously reference to Nancy Pelosi, but this is a Soka hit. From, I don't know, five or six years ago. Enjoy.
Navidad. 